zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Superman 2, released in the U.S. at least on June 19th, 1981. It was written by Mario Puzo, David and Leslie Newman, with uncredited work from Tom Mankiewicz, Directed by Richard Donner originally, replaced by Richard Lester, and released by Warner Brothers. In 1932, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster met as high school classmates. Siegel self-published a magazine called Science Fiction, The Advance Guard of Future Civilization, with Schuster providing illustrations. The character of Superman would debut in their January 1933 issue with the story The Reign of the Superman. The first iteration was not an adopted alien character, but a bald homeless man named Bill Dunn fed experimental drugs by an evil scientist that gave him powers of mind control, mind reading, and clairvoyance. He mostly used the powers for evil, but at the end of the story, the drugs wear off. I think I want to see that one. Yeah, let's make that into a movie. <laughs> it's got to be public domain by now. Rejections from various newspapers inspired Siegel to reimagine the character in comic strip form. Again, his powers were science-granted, but now they included super strength and bulletproof skin. Superman was now conceived as a crime-fighting hero in the realm of characters Siegel and Schuster had loved, like John Carter of Mars, Zorro, and Robin Hood. Still more rejections convinced Siegel that the illustrations were the problem, and he sought a replacement for Schuster, who learned of his plan and burned all of their rejected comics. Siegel connected with Fu Manchu strip artist Leo Omelia, for their collaboration, Superman's origin was adjusted again. Now he came from a future Earth where all humans had developed superpowers. On the eve of Earth's destruction, Superman escapes in a time machine to the present of 1933 and sets about fighting crime. More rejection ensued. But Siegel didn't give up. Next, in 1934, he found Buck Rogers strip artist Russell Keaton, and the time-traveling crime fighter was aged down to a three-year-old, sent back in time by his father and adopted by Sam and Molly Kent. For the first time taking the moniker of Clark Kent, borrowed from actors Clark Gable and Kent Taylor, Supes also dons a crime-fighting uniform for the first time, but more rejection turned Keaton off the project. With nowhere to turn, Siegel reunited with his childhood friend Schuster, and the final adjustment, swapping future Earth out for the distant planet of Krypton. Schuster designed the uniform with tights, the distinctive S, undies, and a cape. Clark spent his days undercover as a journalist alongside Lois Lane, who pines for the hero and is none the wiser. The name Lois was chosen as an intentional reference to Meriwether Lewis because of its connection with the name Clark and the spirit of adventure. When they finally got some strips published with National Allied Publications, they weren't even Superman comics. Henri Duval and Dr. Occult were the first to print. In October of 1935, NAP owner Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson agreed to publish a Superman comic in his magazine, but by that time, Siegel and Schuster had grown weary of the publisher's business sense after having repeatedly gone unpaid for their work and turned the offer down. In 1936, Wheeler Nicholson partnered with Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz to form Detective Comics, and from there, 
Leibowitz established an anthology magazine called Action Comics, eventually convincing Siegel to entrust him with their Superman story. For their work, Siegel and Schuster split $10 per page of a 13-page story, the equivalent of 100 bucks a page now. They signed a contract handing over the copyright of the character to Detective Comics, Incorporated. Wait, is that what the DC stands for? It is what the DC stands for. I did for. not know that. And in April of 1938, Superman was featured in the debut issue of Action Comics and was an instant success. And though it started as an anthology series, it became a dedicated Superman magazine. A second magazine, entitled simply Superman, began in June of 1939, and both have been published continuously in the ensuing 83 years. As a part of the Detective Comics, Superman is one of the lead characters of the DC Universe and makes regular appearances alongside Batman, Wonder Woman, and the other heroes of the DC stable. I feel like this history makes a lot of sense to me. In yeah. terms of the character, it feels like a lot of spaghetti thrown at the wall and these are the things that stuck. Right. But it doesn't feel like a well-rounded character to I me. think it's I think it's well-rounded, but it was fine-tuned over decades before it yeah. even got its first magazine. Well, okay, maybe not well-rounded is the word. It just like it's just like Let's have him, you know, let's have him have laser eyes. Okay, right. let's have him yeah. fly. Oh, wait, let's have him be incredibly strong. Let's have and him. And then whatever you know, people like, <laughs> like will keep that power. Right. And then when people don't like that he can see the future or read minds, then we'll just pull that shit. Yeah, yeah. but it just, it, feel, it feels like a superhero by committee. <laughs> right. Superman has been the most successful comic character of all time. The earliest editorial dictates for the character were that Superman must not kill. Superman was also given a daily comic strip in McClure syndicated newspapers, and they were all authored by Siegel himself until he was conscripted in 1943. The strip continued until the mid-60s, but was revived in the late 70s to coincide with the Christopher Reeve films. In 1940, The Adventures of Superman debuted as a serial radio drama and ran for 2,088 episodes through till 1951. Bud Collier would be the first voice of the character. Who are you anyway? Where do you come from? I have no name. I come from a world that no longer exists. Here in this world of yours, men would call me a Superman. From 1941 to 1943, Paramount Pictures produced 17 8 to 10 minute animated serials. In 48, Columbia produced the first live action Superman content as a 15 part film serial starring Kirk Allen, bizarrely credited only as Superman. Like, the posters didn't say the actor's name. They only said Superman. Mm -hmm. Did you say 15 part? 15 part, very short chunks. Oh, okay. I was like, what, like a 15 feature films? Yeah. No, no. You're saying 15, like, little ones that right. make up a feature. Right. Or okay. make up a general arc of a character, yeah. In 1951, the first official Superman feature film hit theaters, Superman and the Mole Men. It was a B-movie with a budget of $30,000 and starred George Reeves as the titular hero. In 1952, Reeves would don the tights and cape again to play our hero on his first television series, Adventures of Superman. In 1959, the production was sidelined with the unexpected death of actor John Hamilton, who portrayed Perry White on the series. Plans were made to introduce a new actor as Perry White's brother when tragedy struck again in June of 1959. Superman actor George Reeves was discovered dead in his home of a supposedly self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head, though many suspect foul play. Producers discussed reworking the show around Jimmy Olsen and using stock footage of Reeves, but the show was ultimately scrapped. I feel like if there was foul play, there's the possibility that people were testing his powers. 
No, it's actually uh, he was having an affair with uh, Eddie Mannix's wife, who was running MGM at the time, mm. and they made a whole movie about it called Hollywood Land, starring Ben Affleck as George Reeves. It's very interesting. Although, actually, to speak to what you're talking about, there is a scene in that movie where he's at a kid's birthday party and a child walks up with a real loaded gun and it's like, can I shoot you? And he realizes that it's a real gun and he's yeah. like trying to talk the kid down yeah. like, well, no, because the bullet would bounce off and it could hit someone else and we don't want that to happen. And he like <laughs> sneaks the gun away from the kid at the yeah. last second. In 1966, Superman became the subject of a bomb of a Broadway musical entitled It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which ran for three and a half months and cost $600,000 before closing as the biggest flop in Broadway history at the time. I think it's been surpassed by the Spider-Man uh, musical. <laughs> In the early 70s, the Salkind family, Alexander, Ilya, and Michael, were producing The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers back-to-back with director Richard Lester, and later in the decade attempted to reproduce that success by adapting the Superman story into a first and second blockbuster film simultaneously, starring then-unknown Christopher Reeve. Director Richard Lester was again in contention to direct, but the reins were given instead to director Richard Donner, with Lester waiting in the wings. The budget for the combined productions was initially set at $20 million, but Donner insisted on a total of $50 million, and in the end, costs would exceed $100 million. Whoa. But $20 million for both movies. Right, $20 million yeah. for both. That's crazy. And he, he used more than that on one of them. The Salkinds were notorious for failure to pay and getting sued for it, and their relationships with the cast quickly soured. Marlon Brando and Christopher Reeve were both suing the film's producers, even while the second film was in production. Donner had nearly finished shooting the first installment and had shot a significant chunk of the second film when production was shut down due to lack of financing. Screenwriters David and Leslie Newman were brought on in the summer of 79 to do some rewriting that would remove Brando entirely from the second film since they couldn't afford to pay him what they had promised. And Reeve was now big enough to hang a release on. Brando's insane contract, upheld in court, entitled him not only to a percentage of gross from the first film, but an equal percentage in the second film in which he no longer appeared. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Though it does show up later in the franchise, the footage that uh, he shot for Superman 2. Mm -hmm. The 78 Superman is still the most successful adaptation of the character when adjusting for inflation. Really? Yeah. In one of the contracts that I read, Marlon Brando was entitled to 11.75% of gross. What? <laughs> which Jesus. is insane. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's a payday. Then, but it's just that. the Salkinds being like, well, yeah, whatever you want. If you'll be in our movie. And then it'll be like, you actually have to pay that amount, though. And they were like, oh, shoot. Uh, cut him out of the movie, please. Yeah. Mario Puzo spent several days in the DC Comics archive learning the character's mythology and plotted the stories of the first two films simultaneously. His script ran 500 pages, and Tom Mankiewicz was employed as a creative consultant to simplify that draft. But Mankiewicz refused to stay on for rewrites during the second film's production, which is why David and Leslie Newman were brought on. For context, at the start of the first film, Terrence Stamp as Zod and his henchmen are banished to a 2D Kryptonian prison called the Phantom Zone. As the story comes to a close, Lex Luthor has launched two nuclear missiles, one at the California fault line and one at New Jersey. Hackensack, New Jersey, I think, mm -hmm. specifically. In the original script, Superman tosses the Jersey missile into space, stabilizes the California fault line, and rescues Lois from a rock slide. The first film was intended to end with the missile in space destroying the Phantom Zone chamber and releasing Zod and his compatriots to attack the Earth. After the rewrites, the Salkinds took the ending from the second film, 
Superman turning back time to save the day, and pasted it over the ending of the first film. So now, Lois actually dies in the rock slide, which is super dark. Yeah. Because yeah. this character actually died on screen. Whether or not you backed it up, mm-hmm. like she went through that and yeah. died in that car. It's, it's, it's a pretty intense moment for yeah. Superman. And it's definitely a moment where the audience is like, oh, well, I know he's going to get there. He's Superman. And then he doesn't. Mm-hmm. And that's just insane. But Clark brings her back by exceeding the speed of light and turning back time to rescue her. But I have my own problems with the first film because if he goes back in time and he rescues her, he, he doesn't stop the fault line. Are, are there two Supermans at the end of the first movie? The, there, there should be. There's the one that's stopping the fault line and then the one that's rescuing Lois, but then he should never f- rescue the dead Lois. Right, but even the one who's rescuing Lois doesn't rescue Lois. Like, he just goes and finds her in the car and says, Hey, Lois... It's yeah. me, Superman, I love you. And then he flies away. And then presumably she dies in a rock slide moments later. <laughs> and then Superman finds her and then goes back in time again. So then there's like three or four or five Supermans. They should all be showing up at the same time. Wow. It's getting really rainy, folks. So I apologize if you can hear that in the recording. Richard Donner was not happy with these changes and repeatedly butted heads with producer Pierre Spengler, who tried unsuccessfully to remove Donner from the first film as director. Donner was 75% of the way complete shooting Superman 2 when the Salkinds finally removed him from the film, replacing him with their former collaborator Richard Lester, who, to receive a director's credit, was forced to reshoot perfectly good footage Mm -hmm. until his work made up 40% of the final product. Lester only agreed to do the film when the Salkinds promised to pay him the money they owed him from the Musketeer films. (laughs) So they still owed him money and they're making him do more work for it. John Barry had served as production designer on the first film, but as we discussed in our Saturn 3 and Empire Strikes Back reviews, he was stricken with spinal meningitis on the set of Empire Strikes Back and passed away before that film began production. He was replaced on the second Superman film by successor Peter Munn. Along with Brando, Donner, and Barry, John Williams, who provided the much-adored score to the first installment, flat-out refused to work with Richard Lester, and a new composer was brought in, mostly to remix and repurpose Williams' work from the first film. So, a major character, the set designer, composer, and director had all been effectively switched between the back-to-back productions when cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth, who lit the first film, passed away in the middle of production on Roman Polanski's Tess and went on to win the first posthumous cinematography Oscar. Creative consultant Tom Mankiewicz and editor Stuart Baird also refused to return in solidarity with director Donner. Yeah. So it's practically a whole new crew for the second half of this story. During production pauses for rewrites, Reeve left to star in Somewhere in Time and required a few weeks to bulk up and return to the sequel when the Salkinds sued him, claiming he was trying to get out of the project. The completed film was set for release, but a collection of lawsuits prevented its domestic release, and Superman 2 arrived in the UK and Australia in 1980, more than six months before it hit US theaters. The success of Superman and Superman 2 is directly responsible for the green lighting of titles like Batman 1989 and Spider-Man 2002. The series continued with Superman 3, which is really more of a Richard Pryor comedy that sort of features Superman, and then the Golan Globus installment, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Between those two, Supergirl, Kal-El's cousin, got her own film, and after four, Superman has had a bunch of TV shows. Lois and Clark, Smallville, Superman the Animated Series, Justice League, Justice League Unlimited, and Justice League Action, wherein the character's voice is provided by our good friend Jason Lewis. Yeah! Currently, Superman is played in the Arrowverse by Tyler Hecklin, whose Supergirl spinoff, 
Superman and Lois premieres its second season three days from now on January 11th. Uh, the live action Supergirl is yeah. 100% worth watching. That's the Benoist girl? Uh, no, the, the, movie. the movie. Oh, you're yeah, okay. I was talking about the TV show. Helen Slater. It's like Lois Lane's cousin is in there too, right? Yeah, Lois Lane's. But it's 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 very watchable. Um, Faye Dunaway steals the show as the villain. Uh, she's she's just a charmer. It's her and Brenda Vaccaro uh, are like a couple, but they're not a couple. But they're like like they're the the air quotes roommates. Right, right, right. <laughs> I definitely remember when we did the DC marathon that. That was like a highlight between three and four. Yeah. Because it's much better than than the Richard Pryor one or the Golden Globus one. I haven't seen any of these movies. Like, Except for the, the first the two. Man. Well, I, I watched Superman, the first one, because I hadn't seen any of these movies. I'm like, I should probably watch the first one. And then I watched the second one just right. for this podcast. But I have not seen any of the other installments or television shows just the dc <laughs> stuff of of like batman those are the only other ones you've seen yeah yeah yeah. yeah. no I, i'm just saying superman yeah. related content even you know superman versus anybody like yeah. i haven't seen, you haven't seen the cavill stuff literally haven't seen a single other movie with superman in yeah. it. <laughs> you didn't watch lois and clark back in the day no <laughs> you're probably better off <laughs> no you missed out 2006 was a big year for the character, marking the release of a new adaptation, Superman Returns, from director Brian Singer and starring Brandon Ruth, intended as a direct sequel to Superman 2, though modernized a bit, and finally making use of the Marlon Brando footage excised from the second film. Yeah, they it's it's very much a sequel to and in even in the style yeah. of these films, you know, totally totally different from like what Man of Steel would be i think it's definitely worth watching like as a marathon with these first two films because it's really interesting to watch them in order and it's nice to see effects in the same style but with a massive upgrade in terms Mm. of the budget and everything okay but when you say in the same okay so if i were to describe the style of these films and i think i told you this while i was watching it it feels like a theme park ride (laughs) because it it's a little too real but not in a good way if that makes sense it's like (laughs) you're on a roller coaster and the fake car is falling off the building at you and suddenly gets stopped halfway down you know like on Mm -hmm. some sort of rail and it's like "Eh, this feels really fake (laughs) i i feel like the 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 third film if you want to call superman returns the third film it's the same in terms of just the general style and the way that things are shot and and even like the way interiors are decorated in the film. But beyond that, the visual effects are like turned up to 100 because okay. they had a massive budget for it. Okay. But so- Kevin Spacey is the perfect choice to pick up the Gene Hackman role mm-hmm. because him as Lex Luthor in that movie is, is really fun and it feels like a continuation of the same character. Yeah, I, I could see that. Does it? But you said it, do, it doesn't take place in the 80s. It's supposed to be present day? Yeah, it's, it's, okay. it's moved up in time, but... Um, the events of Superman 2 have a direct effect on the plot of Superman Returns, but we'll get to that. To coincide with the new feature, a re-edit of Superman 2 featuring exclusively Donner's work and original story was released entitled Superman 2 The Richard Donner Cut, which even has its own separate IMDb page, which is kind of annoying (laughs) when you're going (laughs) through and trying to do this research. The same year, Ben Affleck technically played Superman by playing George Reeves, television's original Superman, in a period piece investigating the conspiracies surrounding the man's death. In 2013, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel 
introduced Henry Cavill as Superman, and the same incarnation returned for Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice in 2016 and the two-part Justice League in 2017, later re-released as an extended director's cut in 2021 after Snyder left mid-production to mourn the death of his daughter and the film was completed by Joss Whedon. So basically, without the Donner cut, I don't think this Snyder extended version would have ever seen the light of day because it became a thing that people were like, oh, we can force them to release more Superman movies by just demanding the director's version of it. And we can make more money. (laughs) Right. Still more footage from Superman 2 turned up in the form of 1984's television broadcast, which included 30 unseen minutes of Donner footage, some of which was used in the Donner cut, but some wasn't, including a shot of Superman flying past the Concord jet which was cut from the first film Mm. and somehow included in the second film's television broadcast. I I always think it's interesting when scenes that don't appear in a film theatrically appear in television cuts. Right. And I always got to round it up to the next hour for the programming. I I always, I always go back to uh, my callback for this is Ace Ventura. Yeah. Where when he's trying to get back out of Ray Finkel's town, he stops in a bar and he gets in a bar fight. And that's not, that's not in the theatrical cut. But when I was watching it on TV, I was like, well, what the hell is this? (laughs) I don't remember this scene. That's fun. We start the film in space, zooming past the stars. Some weird oil and water art meant to resemble galaxies bulges towards camera. You know what it actually reminds me of? is um, Some of the ethereal artwork in uh, Sleeping Beauty. Oh, sure. Like when when, when they're doing the like magic spell like and and it's kind of it's kind of space-like where you're going through stars and stuff like that i'm like this looks a lot like that i can see that more colors blur and drift past camera until we can see planet krypton exactly as it appeared in footage from the first film because this is the same footage although somehow aged like 20 years yeah it does look a little worse because it probably wasn't handled very well between the films yeah tall ice-like structures on a frozen planet As in the first film's footage, the camera floats toward a large dome at the center of the structure, and the score has hints of also Sprock Zarathustra to go with the general psychedelic 2001 imagery. We dissolve from the dome to a close-up shot of the helmet of a guard. And then we get a wider shot of the room, and we see an actor in a much cheaper version of the same helmet. (laughs) Jack O'Halloran, as Non, sneaks up behind the guard to break his neck, but not before the guard signals for backup. Zod, played by Terrence Stamp, and Ursa join Non near the collection of tall crystals. At first, I was really upset by, like, the bad compositing of the background. awful, yeah. But then when you realize, it's like, oh, this was just a trap. So, right. so, it's so they so, <laughs> so they walked into a room with a blue screen. Yeah, that's what happened. They deserve to get caught. There was supposed to be a fourth exile named Jack L, but uh, he was written out of the story. But he was kind of like the comic relief of these four characters. And well, then that's what I non guess is. Non kind of became that character. Yeah. Zod removes a red crystal from the control panel, and the rest sink into the floor. He breaks the crystal in his hands, and then the lights in the room go out. These three characters were first introduced at the start of the 78 Superman, using some of the same footage from this sequence. Zod and company find themselves in a tractor beam surrounded by spinning hoops. Do you guys recall the last time we saw this spinning hoop visual with two hula hoops that seemed to be balanced on each other as they spun together? Was that in Hawk the Slayer? It was in Hawk the Slayer. Nice. Nicely (laughs) done. Good pull. 
A voice from the darkness around them accuses them of treason and sentences them to the Phantom Zone. They are then trapped in a two-dimensional square and cast into space. As the square spins into space with the prisoners inside, Zod shouts that Jor-El and his descendants will bow to him. Now, in the original film, he says that while he's still in the hoops. Right. That line is, is still is said while he's there. And he's being sentenced by Marlon Brando. Yeah. But they cut him completely out of yeah. this movie. Because the vote had to be unanimous and and he would hold stupidly hold Jarrell personally responsible even though everyone had voted against yeah every, every, everyone would. It's the like, benefit of zooming to work is that yeah. you can vote against criminals and they're only going to blame the guy in the room but but zod was trying to woo Jarrell because Jarrell spoke out against the council very often and was kind of like on the edge about whether or not krypton is a good society or not and yeah so i think zod was trying to get him to come over to his side of this uh but it didn't work out but uh, I love in the first movie, like Ur- Ursa in the Phantom Zone going like, forgive me. Like, like, <laughs> this is like, oh, come on. No. Phantom Zone for you. <laughs> <laughs> now we get a montage intercut with the opening credits of footage from the first film. Kal-El's mother carries him around their home on Krypton. And we see Marlon Brando's hand remove a green crystal from a slot. But we don't see any more of him. We just see his hand remove a green crystal. I it hope he used that in court. <laughs> it was just like that's clearly my hand <laughs> they didn't have the rights to use his appearance in the film so they carefully crop him out of all the flashback material superman is laid down and encased in an escape pod which crashes through the ceiling and drifts off toward earth before planet krypton is destroyed we see the crash site of superman's escape pod on the kent farmland we needlessly re-include footage of a child's penis from the first film <laughs> and then cut to Clark's... T- t- to be fair, there's also a child. It's not just a penis. No, it's just a flo- <laughs> floating disembodied penis. It's like, uh, what is his name? Uh, Dr. Manhattan from... Uh, <laughs> but he appears penis first. <laughs> I was going to go Venture Brothers and say Phantom Limb. But... Okay. <laughs> We cut from this child to Clark's first feat of strength, catching Pa Kent's truck before it can flip over and crush him. We see teenage Clark find a green crystal in a barn at night, and we cut to the offices of the Daily Planet for more footage from the first film of Clark and Lois talking in a hallway. We see Superman catch Lois and a helicopter as both plummet from the roof of a skyscraper. We see Superman spin quickly on a street corner and drill down into Lex Luthor's underground lair, Lex is, of course, being played by Gene Hackman, with assistants Teskmacher and Otis, played by Valerie Perrine and Ned Beatty, respectively. We watch the entire plot of the first film foiled again. Lex hijacks missiles, bombs California, and Superman flies around saving everyone. So, in a day and age where we watch movies streaming into our homes back-to-back... This is a terrible way to start a movie. Yeah. It had only come out two years <laughs> earlier, too. It doesn't seem like it's necessary to do it, this whole uh, thing. Like, it was the worst foot to get off on for me because I wasn't thrilled with the first movie. Yeah. And then I had to rewatch basically the entire thing for the first five minutes of this movie. You weren't yeah. th- oh, hold on, though. You didn't like the first movie? Oh, my God. We're going to get some hate mail on how I feel about these movies. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, when... When, when do you want me to ask about this green rod? <laughs> when we get there, when we get to that part. Okay, because we've, we've already covered some of the, my questions with the fact that it's there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in the first film, we saw the green rod. It got put in the escape pod, and he uses it to create the, the Fortress of Solitude. Yes. 
because it contains basically all of the power of Jor-El and his family on Krypton. Okay, but this is my limited, I've literally never watched any Superman related content in my life. That's kryptonite. Yes. No. No. It's but not I kryptonite. always thought green rocks It's a rocks green crystal in a Superman movie. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think they even say kryptonite in either of these first two films. No. No, no, in the first they, one they, they yeah. do. Oh, they say kryptonite specifically? Yeah. Okay. Cuz I thought they just talk about uh rocks from Krypton. I don't remember them specifically saying Well, kryptonite. no, they when she, when they look it up in the book. Oh, okay. And and it's like a, and a meteorite from Krypton. It's like kryptonite. So the, they do, but then in this film, they don't mention it. It's just that necklace that we had in the last film that gets tossed right. down a drain. Right, from the meteorite, which I right. guess is different than this rod. But it's really confusing to me because I thought for both of these movies that entire time that this was kryptonite. And I did not understand why he would put something harmful in with his baby and then send it to Earth. Yeah. And then that, that, that he would keep it. And that it had no effect on him until it did? I don't know. <laughs> Over the course of these four Christopher Reeve films, they refer to that crystal multiple different ways, too. Because I think, like, there's one where they call it, like, a green crystal, and there's another one where they call it something. I think in the fourth film, they call it something completely different. But none of it's kryptonite. Yeah. The only part that's kryptonite is the rock they found in Addis Ababa in the first film that they made a necklace out of, and then they threw down a drain, and that's it. you got to find a way to get my illegal alien joke in here oh because he's an illegal alien because he doesn't have a green card but he has a green shard oh that's right (laughs) (laughs) that's another way to refer to this thing the flashback sequence finally ends with superman floating in slow motion toward camera above the clouds we cut to the exterior of the daily planet mild-mannered reporter clark kent makes his way through the offices and can't seem to get in a word with anyone When Clark gets to Perry White's office, he learns of a terrorist attack in Paris. Apparently, the story has been unfolding for 12 hours now, but Clark doesn't have television, so he was clueless. In that half day, a gang of terrorists have taken control of the Eiffel Tower, and somehow, White was able to get Lois on the first Concorde flight out of town, and she's there already, in Paris. Well, I mean, 12 hours. I mean, she she could be there in five. Right, but that's just crazy that she got there before superman even heard it was happening and and that this is my problem and uh, we've we've had this discussion of why does superman pretend to be clark kent yeah if it's such a waste of time if you, you should be out there saving people yeah and preventing terrorist attacks you don't even have television get a television because the whole concept like behind being a reporter is that you would have access to up to the minute information right yeah um and if you're not utilizing that then what are you doing just hitting on my girlfriend <laughs> or hitting on everyone in the office yeah it's like oh that's a really lovely blouse like he he's trying to be suave with some of these ladies at the office i was like what what are you doing <laughs> just write your articles the terrorists have 20 tourists hostage and they're threatening to detonate a hydrogen bomb if their demands aren't met the tip is mr white that, that that's terrible that's why they call them terrorists kent Kent is worried about Lois being at risk in this situation, but Mr. White insists that he needs a reporter on the scene in case Paris is destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> all of Paris? Yep, you all need of it. Report, it would I be presume. if that bomb went off. <laughs> yeah. White misunderstands Kent's reservations about sending Lois as professional jealousy. He's like, look, I, I had to do it. My hands were tied. I, I, it's nothing personal, Kent. I, I like that he's also at the same time reworking the front page of the paper where it's like, 
terrorist sees Eiffel Tower and he just changes to Paris destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like what we have in Superman Returns where right. they're like preparing multiple headlines at the same time. Before White can even order Kent out of his office, he's already down on street level, ducking into an alley so he can change into Superman underoos and rocket off to Paris. Lois is just arriving on scene and sneaking through the police line to get to the Eiffel Tower. Even though Perry White already knew about it back in Metropolis, Lois seems shocked to overhear an official mention the hydrogen bomb the terrorists are threatening them with. She is stopped again, trying to gain access to the tower, but distracts the guard with a French-to-English translation handbook. When he stops to help her translate a question, she sneaks up a stairwell of the tower. Upstairs, the terrorists load all of their hostages into an elevator and start it moving. The hostages are moved to a second elevator, and they are told they're being released. Lois overhears this part from just below them and climbs into some sort of support beams under the moving elevator. Mm -hmm. She tries to calm herself with the reminder that she will surely win a Nobel Prize for her article on this attack. French police on the ground keep track of terrorist movements with binoculars, but don't seem to notice Lois under the elevator. Plastic explosives are wired all over the electronics and the structure. A rescue team on the ground cuts power to the structure, which prematurely sets off some of the terrorist explosives. The elevator that Lois is riding underneath is dropped in a freefall down the shaft. The emergency brakes kick in and slow the descent momentarily until the last of the cables break, but luckily Superman is here arriving just in time. Uh, it's a really good effect when the elevator suddenly drops and Marco Kidder is like sucked to the to the bottom yeah. of the elevator. It's like, oh wow, that looks, that looks I like that. Yeah, it was neat. <gasps> I believe this is your floor. Oh, thank God. Lois informs Superman that there's a bomb on board the elevator, and Superman flies the entire elevator into space, throwing it past the moon. The shockwaves from the explosion toss Superman back to Earth, but in the opposite direction they are powerful enough to break open the two-dimensional square containing Zod, Non, and Ursa. The three criminal Kryptonians drift intentionally toward the nearest heavenly body, namely Earth's moon. The next day, outside the Daily Planet, Clark notices Lois arriving for work and crosses the street to meet her. He's hit by a taxi but doesn't react to the collision, despite destroying the vehicle's front end. Clark heads up to Lois's office, where she prepares some fresh-squeezed orange juice. She juices five or six oranges for the equivalent of a half shot of orange juice. She explains to him that orange juice is natural, it contains vitamins, even as she stubs out her twelfth cigarette in the ashtray on her desk. Did you count them? No, I didn't. <laughs> but this movie and the previous film are heavily sponsored by Marlboro. Yeah, there's a lot of smoking. Even when it's like not like attractive smoking. Yeah. It's just like... like Is, is any smoking attractive Well, anymore? smoking makes you look cool. Yeah. I, I, like, like there's a cool way to smoke. And then there's Margot Kidder's like... Like just like dangling, like, yeah. like race like, dance. Yeah, like <laughs> wet cigarette in her uh, mouth yeah. just hanging out there. Even uh, Karen Allen in Raiders, when she's lighting the cigarette, is like, must have slipped his mind the way she's lighting yeah. it and then blows the smoke in Toad's face. Like, that's cool. Yeah, she looks yeah. like a badass. All right. <laughs> Lois tells Clark that his problem is a lack of aggression. He offers to take over juicing the oranges and accidentally pinches his finger. Lois offers him the meager spoils of the juiced oranges and then friend zones him. <laughs> I mean, what else are friends for? Friends, huh? That's worse than the Phantom Zone. I was just going to say, I'd rather be Phantom Zone. <laughs> we cut down to the jail where Superman left Lex Luthor and Otis at the end of the first film. Otis tries to console Lex Luthor for the failure of his previous plan, 
and pins the blame on that pesky Superman character. Otis even mentions that every time Superman saves the day, he races off to the north, but no one knows where. Why? To ski? Luthor says he has a device that can track alpha waves, and he intends to follow Superman to wherever he's going. We cut to NASA, or a NASA stand-in, called SICE, or the Society for International Space Exploration. Total missed opportunity to have Star Labs in there. Yeah, I don't know why you didn't do that. They're checking in with the lunar landing team, who've evidently been up there for 45 days, though the flight controller may have been exaggerating. The longest lunar mission to date was the Apollo 17 mission, which lasted 12 days from blast-off to touchdown, with just over three days spent on the lunar surface. This particular mission, Artemis II, appears to be a joint effort with the Russians. Either coincidentally or intentionally, the current Artemis program also involves human-led lunar landings. The Artemis I, an unmanned test launch scheduled for later this year, and the identically named Artemis II is currently set to launch in May of 2024, though who can really plan that far ahead. Mission Control speaks with astronaut Nate, who describes the current efforts of fellow astronauts Andy and cosmonaut Boris. Nate jokes that he and Boris are now engaged, and Mission Control claims they saw this coming. Just then, Nate notices the Kryptonians, freed from the Phantom Zone, floating around in the moon's tenuous atmosphere. When Nate reports a woman floating around, Mission Control seems concerned with his mental health. Andy is hopping between some large moon rocks when he sees Ursa standing suitless on the moon. Her walk is seemingly unaffected by the moon's low gravity. Somehow they're able to converse with each other through the vacuum of space. What kind of a creature are you? Just a man. A man? She notices his SICE badge on his spacesuit and reaches for it. He does his best to evade her, but she eventually gets ahead of him and swipes the insignia away, puncturing his suit, which somehow inflates massively, <laughs> and then she kicks him fully off the moon into space. This was really disturbing. Yeah, this whole yeah. scene is super dark. All of it. Like, I was not expecting murder. I think part of how it works is that these people are covered by spacesuits. So you're not seeing the real gross stuff. You're just, there's the implied violence of the situation. And so kids watching it are just like, oh, cartoony, they beat mm -hmm. up a spaceman and kicked him into space. But the adults watching it are like, no, Whoa. he's, that guy's super dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actress Sarah Douglas has mentioned that the moment of her kicking the astronaut into space is removed from the Japanese version of the film because of its portrayal of a dominant female killer. Uh-huh. Cosmonaut Boris is hard at work collecting samples when he feels a tug at his oxygen line. He is violently yanked by the tube over a rock and lands beside Zod and a lunar rover. Zod tosses Boris out into space and then yanks the oxygen line away, and he drifts into the blackness. Nate makes an executive decision to blast off from the moon, but it's moments too late. Non, Zod's giant mute henchman, grabs a hold of the lander and just crushes it completely in his arms. Back in Houston, Mission Control doesn't seem to be taking the worrying broadcasts seriously. Artemis, Houston calling. Come in, please. What's going on? Oh, I don't know. We've lost contact. So? <laughs> the guy who gives even less of a shit here is played by John Ratzenberger. <laughs> Back on the moon, Ursa, Zod, and Non seem completely shocked at their super strength. But if Non didn't know he could demolish that lander, why did he even try? Uh, I mean, that's Non for you. That's true. What they will come to learn is that their powers, like Superman's, are derived from Earth's yellow sun. After hearing them call repeatedly to Houston, or Houston as they call it, the trio fly down to Earth in search of a Houston to rule. 
At the prison where Luthor and Otis are being held, a guard is making the final rounds for the night. He calls for lights out, but the lights in Luthor's cell remain on. Inside the cell, Luthor and Otis can be seen playing chess, but when the guard moves into the cell, the image of the prisoner suddenly vanishes, and we learn that, in addition to the alpha wave detector, Luther has smuggled in a holographic recorder and projector. Yeah. It is projecting a hologram of them in the room, which is now being projected on the guard's back. I don't like that part of the hologram uh, includes them moving pieces, but then there are just pieces on the board. There are pieces on the board? Yeah. That is weird. It's like, no, (laughs) that should have been part of the hologram. Yeah, the board should be empty. Outside in the prison courtyard, Luthor and Otis sneak through lazily attended searchlight patterns, and a rope ladder is dropped down by Miss Teskmacher in a hot air balloon. Apparently, this particular escape was modeled after an IRA prison break from Mountjoy Prison, but that used a helicopter, not a hot air balloon. <laughs> it's good to have a, an escape uh, vehicle that you can steer. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of just like a, uh, I guess we're going up now. Away. <laughs> but at least it would be silent. Yeah. Luthor climbs up first, and when it's Otis's turn, he's actually pulling the hot air balloon down to the ground with every step up the ladder until Luthor breaks it loose and they abandon him in the prison. That's the last we see of Otis in this whole franchise. We cut to Niagara Falls and the neighboring Honeymoon Haven Hotel. Lois and Clark are being led by a smarmy hotel employee through the Honeymoon Suite, complete with a fireplace in the center of the room. When you tug on the attached ropes, the flames triple in size. Despite tossing their bags around and chewing gum the whole time he talks to them, the bellhop holds out a hand for a tip, and Clark obliges him. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And have a happy whatever. Once the bellhop leaves the room, Lois quickly breaks character to reveal that, no, Lois and Clark have not just gotten married. Can you believe this? Posing as newlyweds to expose a honeymoon rack at Niagara Falls. Lois thinks this is a waste of their time, and she's right. Yeah. Why did you send your two top reporters to Niagara Falls for this crappy scam? And 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 what would be the racket that they're overcharging? I mean, right. it's that's, that's not a racket. The, that's, that's the tourist industry. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, you, it's like you, you charge for all these complimentary things. Okay. Yeah, it's like tell the people of Metropolis like you, they give a fuck. You don't go to the Madonna Inn and and go, "Wait, what do you what do you mean this is a really really expensive place?" Um <laughs> <laughs> So I guess I never I never even thought for a second that this was supposed to fake me out that they were married. No. I think that they could have faked us out, but I think that they failed at doing that, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure. That 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 they could have they could have had them acting instead of acting cheesy about carrying her over the threshold, you know, they could have had them be like really serious about it, you know, like like being kind to each other and, and sweet and not joking i I think the 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 last time we saw them together in lois's office she sort of said so you marry me will you marry me (laughs) and then like cut away with with like a bizarre look from clark because you go wait what and then you were oh this is part of an assignment yeah yeah. Yeah. like i think that would have been a fun joke yeah that would have been better the room is very pink with a pink couch and chairs and a giant cotton candy pink bearskin rug Clark finds a complimentary corsage on their dresser and pins it to Lois before telling her she looks very pretty. She thanks him with her hands on his shoulders, and when she turns away, she seems to be reminded of something, like holding his shoulders and looking up at him reminded her of someone. But who? Any man. (laughs) (laughs) Clark asks about sleeping arrangements, and Lois points to the complimentary couch. 
We cut away to Luthor's hot air balloon traveling through frozen wasteland on his way to the Fortress of Solitude. Also, one of the scenes that we get the first of bits of stand-in dialogue yeah, for, because for Gene Hackman, who he refused not... to come back for the Lester stuff. Yeah, so there's a voice impersonation of Gene Hackman that's just not good. Just growling man voice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the McGruff crime dog trying to do <laughs> Gene Hackman. Uh, He's taking a bite out of the script. <laughs> Back at the falls, a young boy in a striped shirt is climbing all over the railing over the water. It's clear that Clark really enjoys pretending to be Lois's husband here, and he wants to keep up appearances by holding her hand, which she agrees to. She notices Clark's glasses have gotten misty from the falls and offers to wipe them clean. Clark panics, and when Lois turns to give them back, she catches sight of his face without the glasses and pauses mid-sentence. Clark finally notices the boy with the death wish balancing on the railing seconds before his mother does and she yanks him down to the walkway. Lois is distracted by a nearby hot dog shop and takes a Polaroid of it instead of the falls behind her. Clark pokes fun at her priorities. Clark, once a girl's seen Superman in action, Niagara Falls kind of leaves you cold, you know what I mean? Him again, huh? Clark offers to get a couple hot dogs and some freshly squeezed orange juice for her. (laughs) Because I don't know if I've ever seen a hot dog stand that also serves orange Yep, that's juice. all they got. They're but it big, is, it is Canada. Food. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the woman trying to kill her child is back at work ignoring him <laughs> while he dangles from the water side of the railing. Lois, alone, watches the kid lose his grip and tumble over the falls, and she screams for help even before he hits the water. And in an insert, we see a dummy apparently thrown into Niagara Falls. (laughs) Like they took a dummy and dressed it like the kid and literally threw it into the waterfall. It's not comped in here. Clark disappears behind the hot dog shop and Superman arrives just in time to catch the kid at the base of the waterfall and drop him back off with his mother. He will surely die later this afternoon. (laughs) I think it would have been funnier if he just flew away and they were like, where is he going? And he just dropped the kid off at Child Protective Services. (laughs) With the child safe, Superman flies into the distance. It suddenly occurs to Lois that Clark is nowhere to be found. Happened to be in Niagara Falls, and Clark... Clark is not around as usual. On his way back to Lois, Clark steals two hot dogs without paying for them to keep up the ruse. Hey, you don't kill, but you can steal. Mm-hmm. Oh, is that... He's the Superman man of rule? steal. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. (laughs) Is that why they call him that? Oh my god. Back in the icy tundra, Luthor and Teskmacher ride a snowmobile through the mountains, still headed north. How they got that snowmobile? It was in that hot air balloon. (laughs) (laughs) They quickly locate the Fortress of Solitude, an enormous tower of crisscrossing crystals. Inside, Luthor is fascinated with the architecture. He approaches what looks like a control panel of glowing crystals. He warns Teskmacher against touching anything, but she ignores him and lifts a crystal out of a tube. When Luthor drops it into a different tube, a recording plays out. Kryptonian memory bank. Education crystal number 308. Uh-huh. I told you it was a crystal. Shut up. Earth culture, section B. Trees. By Joyce Kilmer of the planet Earth. Insanely, 
This particular lesson that they've summoned up at random is the same poem mentioned by Farrah Fawcett in our previous film released the same day in theaters. (laughs) Have you ever heard of Joyce Kilmer? Yeah. She wrote a really terrific poem about a tree. Uh, he. Who? He. He, says she? She's a he. Oh. I always thought it was strange, even in the first movie, that they have so much information of the history of Earth. Yeah, why did they have that information? Have they been observing the planet the whole time, I, I guess? I, I mean, I can, I, I guess. Because they knew about it. They knew about the people there and everything when yeah. they sent him, so. But, but they the, must have seen uh, Cannonball Run this last weekend, too, so they, <laughs> they put were like, this You're going to get there around June 19th. You're going to need to know this Joyce Kilmer poem. <laughs> Who's she? She's a he. In a large crystal the size of a full-size mirror, we see a bald Kryptonian recite Joyce Kilmer's poem. In the Donner cut, it's Marlon Brando reciting the line, but all of that was replaced when they cut him out. He's not here. It's a voice from the past. That's cute. That's very cute. The footage of Brando addressing his son for these recordings was eventually used, as I said, in Brian Singer's Superman Returns in 2006. I think it would have been especially funny to have Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor say that about the Marlon Brando voice. Oh, he's not there. He's a voice from the past. Because it literally was. Luther gestures for Teskmacher to pluck more crystals for the control panel, and they unlock a message from Kal-El's mother. She's speaking on the fate of their home planet Krypton. Specifically, she mentions the imprisoning of Zod, Ursa, and Non. Criminals? My kind of people. Incredibly, Superman's mom predicted the exact fate of the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone might, just might, be cracked by a nuclear explosion in space. (laughs) Did you mean a star, or did you literally mean a nuclear weapon might explode near it? She further explains that these three criminals would have all of Superman's powers were they unleashed on planet Earth, and Luthor starts hatching a plan. We see them riding away from the Fortress of Solitude, and Luthor mentions three new alpha readings on his black box device, but it's not really Luthor. (laughs) It's that growly guy. I think this is the last shot with Eve Teskmacher for the whole franchise, too. She just disappears on their way back and never comes back. His plan now is to touch base with these beings and forge an alliance. Back on the falls, Lois is hinting quite blatantly at her suspicion that Clark is in fact Superman, and he's playing dumb. Lois decides to test her theory and leaps over the railing into the water, expecting Clark to put on the tights and rescue her. To keep the secret, though, Clark remains in reporter mode, as Lois floats down the whitewater rapids toward one of the world's largest waterfalls. When they're far enough apart, Clark lowers his glasses and uses Superman's laser vision to cut a branch off of a tree so Lois will have something to float on. She manages to get a hold of the branch and kick her way to the side of the river without much of Clark's help. I, I always like would love to see like re-edits of like, things that Superman trying to do things like he cuts the branch, but instead it just falls right onto her. Yeah. Just, just, <laughs> just top down her. bashes her head in. She's thoroughly embarrassed at how wrong she was, but apparently she has been disabused of the notion that Clark and Superman are the same person. We see Zod and friends flying around in earth's atmosphere. They land near a lake and Zod actually touches down in the water. We get the classic fisherman who thinks he's drunk witnessing all mm-hmm. this and Zod levitates from waist deep in the lake to standing on the surface of the water and traverses a path to shore without breaking the surface tension of the lake. Uh, I almost, I was watching this a couple of times and I don't think it's in reverse. No, I think uh, he's walking on a, a No, 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 when, when, he, when, he, when, he's, when he rises. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think it would make more sense for him to sink into the water and then to reverse it. 
uh, to make him appear to rise because he rises so smoothly. Yeah. Um. Uh, and then you know him walking is they have the angle of the sun on the water, so right. you can't see anything beneath it. Is exactly. As they walk together, Ursa notices a snake crawling across the path, but when it bites her, she throws it on the ground and sets it on fire with laser vision. Wouldn't it have been able to bite her at all? We're introducing the second weakness of Kryptonians, snake bites. <laughs> snake bites. <laughs> had to be snakes. Snakes. I also like that she didn't know that she had laser vision until she set the snake yeah. on fire. She was just that angry that she conjured up the ability. Well, like, that that's part of my confusion about this. So... On their home planet, no, they, they don't have, no have powers. powers. Correct. The only reason they have powers here is because the Earth atmosphere is different. Because of the sun. The sun. Oh, the sun. Yeah. The yellow sun gives them gives them power. But on Krypton, they don't have power, or else Jor-El and Mom El would have flown away with their sun. But they didn't do that. But they seem to have. Oh, okay. I was gonna say they seem to have power in space too, but they're within our solar system when that is occurring right, yeah. so i guess that makes sense non collects the charred carcass of the snake from the fire and tests his own laser vision but he doesn't quite have it down was that was that the snake i thought it was just a stick oh i, I, think, I, I think it's think supposed, it to, be supposed to be oh really snake. okay yeah. <laughs> it just burns into a real solid piece back in the honeymoon suite lois is drying off by the fireplace and embarrassed about her earlier stunt she has misplaced her comb and asks Clark for a brush, but as he brings it to her, he trips over the pink bearskin rug and drops his glasses in the fireplace. He immediately fishes them out with his bare hands. Worrying, Lois demands to see how badly he burned himself. But there's nary a mark to be found. Maybe because his hands were barely in the fire for a second. Or he's Superman. Again, she accuses him of being Superman, and after a brief denial, he crosses the room and removes his glasses. As he turns to face her, unmasked, his body straightens out into his hero pose. Clark isn't even sure why he admitted to being Superman, and Lois posits that he secretly wanted to tell her. And while they're admitting things, Lois confesses she's in love with Clark and Superman. But, like, this is. This feels like the easier one to have not admitted to. Like, when her life was on the line. He didn't give this information up, but when but this it's time just she like, was like, "You're Superman," and he's like, "Ah, oh, yeah." It's <laughs> like, "Oh wait, I didn't really get burned." You could just be like, "Yeah, my hand didn't really go in the flame." Yeah. The end. That was the other hand. Don't look at that one though. Yeah. See, look at my sweater. It's not burned, so clearly I didn't get into the fire. Clark offers to take Lois to his place for a private conversation, even though they're at a pricey upscale honeymoon suite. That's this is a private place. We can have a conversation here. Uh, I guess uh, it could be bugged. Well, th- yeah, that's the thing. Like, if they're investigating some kind of scam, I'd be worried about that very yeah. thing. But you just admitted you were Superman. In the yeah, middle exactly. Of the room. Well, you you could maybe chalk that up to uh, to the newlyweds uh, doing yeah. a little role play. But <laughs> there you go. I'm sure it's not the weirdest thing that they've seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like that you're implying that they watch every honeymoon suite. Yes. Not just this one. <laughs> yeah. As part of the scam that I assume is happening. Yes. Because like, you record the- This is purely for scamming purposes. <laughs> <laughs> and training. <laughs> He offers to take her to his place for a private conversation, and she suggests that they both get changed, poking fun at his clothes. Do you remember the last time we saw a prospective fiancé make fun of Christopher Reeve's clothes in a hotel room? Somewhere in time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the only other Christopher Reeve movie we've covered. I don't understand. Nobody seems to like my suit. 
Well, can you blame them? Well, wait a minute. I think my suit is terrific. I mean, what's wrong with this? I don't care. So what if it's 10 years old? Or at least 15. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a penny from 1979 and starts collapsing in on himself. Because <laughs> it's just like, oh God, it's from when you turn back time in the last movie. We get a flying POV over a dirt road, and it actually looks like footage from the San Andreas fault line scenes from the first film, but we come to rest on a police car moving through the country. They're on their way to a restaurant, and the sheriff in the passenger seat is being played by J.W. Pepper himself, Clifton James. That's right. They bring the car to a stop when they find three Kryptonian criminals in the road. I won't name them, but I'm sure you can guess which three. Zod orders the sheriff out of his way, and the sheriff sends his deputy with a shotgun to clear the road. Again, Ursa is fascinated by the officer's badge and tears it from his uniform. She attaches it to her chest alongside the size badge that she ripped off the astronaut. I like that she's just making a collection. <laughs> yeah, of she just has all these different badges of the people I've killed today. She didn't kill this guy. No, she then. didn't yet. Zod uses his laser vision to heat up the deputy's shotgun until it's glowing red hot. We saw something like this in a MacGyver episode, and by the time it was that hot, the ammunition would have combusted. But when the man lets go of it, the lasers work like a tractor beam, holding it in the air and then bringing it to Zod. Which is not a power that I have seen Superman wield. No, he doesn't use that the finger tractor beam thing either. Zod pulls the trigger with the shotgun pointed at his own chest, but is completely unaffected by it. He tosses the gun under the police car, but Non still wants to play with it, so he lifts the whole car with one hand. Do you remember the last time we saw someone single-handedly lift a car off the ground? Yeah, it was the naked toddler at the beginning of this movie. (laughs) The one with the penis? Yeah. (laughs) The penis with the child What about before this movie? Uh, Was it in the Cannonball Run? Yes, it was. Joe Klecko changing the tire right before the race started. Non is upset to find that the shotgun is no longer in working condition and takes out his anger by ripping a gumball off the police cruiser and offering it to Zod, who is not interested. I don't know why he's even giving it to him. He's like, well, here, did you want this? Well, uh, Zod makes a, a point of saying that he likes the glow of the light because it reminds him of Krypton. But it's not glowing anymore. Yeah, and so Zod doesn't want it. But then Non cradles it in his arm like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's a child. We cut to Superman and Lois flying through the same snowy region on the way to the Fortress of Solitude. Wow, this is your home? No. Actually, I live in the city about three blocks from you. Lois is surprised how comfortable the temperature is inside the fortress, but I would have expected that she would be freezing on the way in, flying over tundra for hours Mm -hmm. at high speeds. We cut back to Zod and friends in the middle of a small town. Non is practicing again with his laser vision and getting a magnifying glass level beam on the side of a wooden trailer. Zod and Ursa enter a diner together at the tail end of an arm wrestling match between customers. Ursa challenges the winner. As the match begins, Ursa slams the man's arm down so hard that the table is splintered into pieces and the guy lands flat on his face on the ground. The police car arrives back in town with a flat tire when another of the diner patrons threatens to throw Ursa out of the joint. Zod effortlessly whips the man through a wall and then through a pallet truck outside into the middle of the street. This actually looked really good. Yeah, a lot of these stunts are cool. Which makes me think that Richard Donner shot Yeah. Although they're not in the Donner cut, this whole beginning of the fight isn't. Another man in town pulls yet another gun on the Kryptonians, and Zod catches the man in a white tractor beam emanating from his finger and lifts him 20 feet in the air. A young boy pleads with Zod. Please, mister! He's the general. Please, mister general! Please let my daddy down! Was this a boy? He says, let my daddy down. 
No, the D- daughters can have daddies too. Yeah. He says, "Let my daddy down." <laughs> so, boy. Well, also, this child has a British accent for some reason. Because it's shot in the UK. <laughs> Zod drops the man face first in some loose dirt on the side of the road. Back at the Fortress of Solitude, Clark is explaining how the control panels work, showing her the lone green crystal among all the clear ones. He explains, as we saw in the first film, that this one crystal called to him back on his adoptive family's farm, and he was instructed wordlessly to bring it here to form the Fortress of Solitude. He asks what she thinks of the place, as she says that it could use a woman's touch, especially when it comes to dinner. Superman blasts off to a tropical island where we see him collect bird of paradise flowers from under a waterfall. I also like that he he goes to this place looking for food and and he looks in these smiles and it just immediately cross cuts to a macaw and I was like <laughs> is, is he, he gonna eat it? Is he gonna eat this? <laughs> fries it with his laser vision. He's and like brings I mean, it home for dinner. I mean, ladies like birds, right? That's what they say. But then when he comes back, he's got a grocery bag. Yeah, he <laughs> oh, the only thing that he got natural was the flowers. Yeah, everything else he went and bought at a store like down the street from the Fortress of Solitude, <laughs> which I'm assuming he went as Superman. Yeah, there's just a <laughs> bodega carved into the ice. <laughs> I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> Weirdly, we get an insert shot of Lois picking up her purse to follow Superman and accidentally leaving the green crystal behind. The most was she it, trying to steal it? <laughs> like, mo- it's like it's just like like oh this is like the fancy crystal that built this whole fortress oh great toss cool anyway i'm gonna leave it in the dust in this corner and hopefully you'll find it later (laughs) maybe she'd put it in her purse and it fell out i really can't tell what's supposed to be happening here we cut back to the small town where now a television reporter is broadcasting live on zod and friends they essentially reuse this whole sequence in man of steel uh where zod and his team assault a small town yeah they also reuse it in the first Thor movie. Mm. There's a small town in the middle of the desert just getting destroyed by a bunch of aliens. We learn from his intro that this town is East Houston, Idaho, implying that they've mistaken this small town for Houston, Texas, where mission control is staged. Clearly, you'd have to look it up to find this town. And I mm. feel like... No, it's like, you know, at the beginning of Dumbo, when the birds are flying around and you can see the names of places just stamped on them. Okay. So it's like that when you come down from space. East Houston before Houston. Because I was going to say, you look it up anywhere and I'm pretty sure you're going to find Houston before East Houston, Idaho. That's true. It's just, it was cheaper to destroy a, a tiny fake town in the middle of the desert. <laughs> yeah. Than to destroy <laughs> the real Houston for your movie. <laughs> yes. It was definitely expensive. Non interrupts the reporter's broadcast, followed shortly by Zod and Ursa. Zod is excited to learn that this broadcast has the capability of reaching the whole planet. The whole planet Houston? Earth. The whole planet Earth. Uh, I like that Non picks up the the preview screen, like, monitor. Yeah. He's about to smash it, and Zod just goes, no. <laughs> and Non slowly puts it down. Zod intends to hijack the broadcast and send a message to the world when they are interrupted again by the arrival of the U.S. Army. Non uses his new perfect laser vision to blow up an incoming jeep, which then ramps up and crashes through the second story of a building. Troops blast a flamethrower at Zod, who redirects the fire with his breath to set a nearby store on fire. Uh, the animation on this fire is so bad. Is real bad. I meant to say it early too. The animation, the weird animation on the the breaking of the phantom zone yeah i was like what what is this yeah it's an 80s music video right it, no yeah <laughs> i was like i was gonna say gem and the holograms yeah 
The reporter compares their powers to Superman's, and we cut to the White House, where the president appears ready to surrender to General Zod. I'm afraid there's nothing anybody can do. These people have such powers, nothing can stop them. Various troops continue to fire on the Kryptonians, and Non even catches an RPG in midair, cracking it in half with his bare hands. I'm surprised it didn't explode. Helicopters are brought in to fire rockets, but continue to have no effect. Ursa mocks the humans for needing machines to fly, even though she only learned to fly a few hours ago. <laughs> she uses her super breath to blow the choppers out of the sky, and one crashes into a barn causing a massive explosion. Zod looks into the reporter's camera to issue his challenge to the world. Back at the Fortress of Solitude, Superman and Lois are sharing a bottle of breakfast champagne. Superman admits that he enjoys playing the Clark Kent role. They flirt with each other for a moment, and Lois says she's going to change into something more comfortable, and I expect her to just come back covered in crystals, because there's no <laughs> clothes here. <laughs> back in East Houston, Zod collects the allegiances of all the armed forces in the area as they surrender. He asks an army general who he serves. I answer only to the president, and he will answer to me. In the Fortress of Solitude, Superman consults with his parents through the crystal control panel. On a ledge behind him, Lois reappears in what looks like a translucent lab coat. I can't tell what the hell she's wearing. Well, we also skipped a bit of the uh, giant silver beanbag chair that they make love in. No, that's still coming. Oh, that's still coming? Yeah. Uh That's after he transforms. Supermom is disappointed to hear that her son has decided on a life with a human woman, which mom claims will require him to give up his powers. Again, reminding me of the first Thor film. But why? Because, as Kevin Smith explained, (laughs) his super jizz would shoot right through her. I think the implication is that this is specifically for the act of lovemaking. He couldn't do that unless he gave up his Really? Is that that the implication here? I think so. Because they were already romantic with each other. It's not like they couldn't flirt with each other beforehand. And they only do one thing immediately after he gives up his powers. I think it's literally just you can't physically be with this person unless you give up your immortality and so he agrees to i guess it's not immortality. you can gently scoop a child out of a waterfall but you can't do other things the gently. problem is that i don't know if you've ever slept with superman he loses control of himself <laughs> from the floor of the fortress superman summons up a crystal chamber that makes use of red kryptonite to permanently remove his powers though in the comics Red kryptonite only temporarily steals power, while gold kryptonite serves the permanent function. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a super-powered man relinquish his powers for the opportunity to live on Earth? I feel like I should know this one. It was a Patreon episode, if that helps. The second Patreon episode. A spaceman called Horse. I don't remember. You were so close. (laughs) A spaceman called Hercules. Hercules in New York. Lois keeps making a face in the background like, uh i'm actually seeing somebody maybe don't do this but instead of intervening she just lets him go through with it superman walks out of her crystal monitor to approach her son in person and superman steps into the crystal chamber which slides shut behind him as superman is blasted with red kryptonite radiation he has a bizarre dream sequence where he pictures himself wrapped in flame and the skin melts off of his face When the chamber opens, Clark and Superman appear side by side until Clark steps out and walks up to Lois. He leads her to the hammock district, a large silver bed hanging from the fortress ceiling, and we cut back to the White House, where the president watches the Kryptonian criminals fly past Mount Rushmore and use laser vision to carve their own faces over the president's. (laughs) 
The president has a line here that feels like such an afterthought to me that like that they plugged it in. Where he's like, like after thousands of hours screening. of work and they got rid of it in a second. We'll never beat them. Yeah, that that that, you know, that later, like in a moment when, you know, they show up at the White House and, and he, you know, uh, kneels to them. Like, I feel like they're like. Uh, an audience will never believe that the president will do this and so they're like okay quick 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 let's put some sort of line in here before that happens that the president is like certain that there's no way to beat these guys based on Mm -hmm. how powerful they are and that it would save millions if we just let them go it's also to set up the fake out that's coming too but they screw up the fake out a number of different ways because uh well we'll get to it i guess i i also like that uh that non gets his face on Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Like, it's not just Zod or Zod and Ursa. Like, no, no, it's all three of them. Yeah. Like, they, they all get equal representation. Yeah. And there are four faces, but they just destroy the last one because yeah. they don't have a fourth person anymore. Do you think that that was originally written in there when they had a fourth person? I don't know. Maybe. The Kryptonians fly toward Washington, and we cut to post-coital Superman and Lois in that silver bed with blankets. Based on the events of Singer's pseudo-sequel, I would say that they have just conceived a son together. Zod and friends crash through the White House ceiling and stomp directly toward the Oval Office, reflecting bullets and bombs used against them by the Secret Service agents in the hall. Inside the Oval, Zod demands the President kneel before him, but when the man does so willingly, Zod realizes this is a trick. You are not the President. No one who leads so many could possibly kneel so quickly. So, I think part of the point of him watching the monitor saying, ah, we're fucked, I'm going to kneel to this guy right away, was so that we would think this was the president. But the guy who's saying that watching the television has a full head of hair. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy who's posing as the president now, who's actually played by Keira Knightley, is completely bald. Keira Knightley? (laughs) I liked your reference, Pat. I don't get it. (laughs) Also, at the very beginning of the movie, it says, the president played by E.G. Marshall. So you know who's (laughs) playing the president in this movie. Uh, Kira Knightley plays the body double for uh, Natalie Portman oh, in no, the Star I, Wars movie. I know that. Okay. That was just a little too far of a leap <laughs> for me on that one. Wasn't it Sofia Coppola in the second one? Was she in there? Yeah, I think oh, so. I didn't know that. She plays the president in the next Superman movie? Another double. <laughs> another double. A, a double, double in case of trouble. The chicken shit president steps out from behind another group of White House staff. And the president also agrees quite quickly to kneel, but first mentions one among the earthlings who will never kneel. Who is this imbecile? Where is he? I wish I knew. We cut back to Lois and Clark driving a presumably stolen car back to civilization. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Amazingly, they didn't just die walking back through frozen tundra. Yeah. I was going to say, how do they even get to a car without dying? Yeah. They're both just mortal now. I, I like to think that Superman has stolen a car and kept it fully fueled at the fortress just on, in case. On the just in case. <laughs> Clark is blissfully unaware of Zod's attacks on the planet because he flat out refuses to get a television, even though he apparently has no power to detect danger until someone is actively shouting help near him. Yeah. <laughs> like, he didn't know that kid was falling into the waterfall until Lois screamed it. He's he's a terrible superhero because he can only, he can only do things when you specifically request it in person from him. Mm-hmm. And they have a car with a radio. Yeah. <laughs> they're just like oh it's news again i hate this go back to the golden oldies <laughs> why would we as reporters care about the news <laughs> <laughs> that night they pull up to don's diner a trolley car hot dog place inside we hear the arrival of mr wonderful a trucker who honks his horn as he gets parked 
Clark steps away to the restroom just long enough for Mr. Wonderful to steal the bar stool beside Lois and start aggressively hitting on her. Is this Clark's first time going to the bathroom? Yeah, he hasn't had to go this whole time. <laughs> but he eats. But I don't know if he has to eat. It just keeps but, compiling but like a black he, hole. But, but he <laughs> does eat, so I would imagine something has to happen with that food. What if he just went and pooped and it was like that black baby poop? <laughs> because it's the first time ever. <laughs> gross superman (laughs) he comes out he's like excuse me Uh, do you have wet naps (laughs) a lot Uh. when clark returns he requests his seat back and the trucker gets angry clark challenges him to a fight because one of superman's powers was apparently patience (laughs) and he wants to start a fight with an innocent man When Clark turns to lead the man outside, Mr. Wonderful punches him in the back of the head, knocking Clark through a short wall with windows in it that all shatter around him. Clark is shocked at the sight of his blood. Clark? Blood. It's my blood. Clark goes to bother the trucker again and is handily whooped again, despite Reeve being like 6'4 and fairly ripped. Yeah. I'm assuming relying on super strength all the time has caused muscle atrophy like when astronauts return to Earth and they can barely walk. Lois jumps on the trucker to avenge Clark, and eventually the guy leaves the diner. To calm the customers, the owner puts on the TV in the place, and all the news is about the Kryptonians taking the country hostage. The president is on screen announcing his planetary surrender to General Zod and his cohorts. He claims that this is the only way to spare the lives of the people, but at the last moment he breaks script and begs for Superman's intervention until Zod snags away all the microphones. Who is this Superman? You'll find out, General. And when you do, come to me, Superman. If you dare, I defy you. Come, come and kneel before Zod. Clark decides that it's been a hard four hours with no powers and it's time to go beg for them back. He lets Lois take the car and attempts unsuccessfully to hitchhike to the Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> <laughs> like, what was he going to do? He's like, oh, just take a left here. There's no road there just yeah just going. go over that mountain it's about 100 miles that <laughs> yeah, way four or five hundred miles <laughs> when he finally reaches it the lights are out and everything looks dead he calls to the recordings of his parents and gets no response as he meanders around the fortress he sees the green crystal lois left on the ground and now it's glowing he picks it up and we cut away to non staring point blank at one of those newton's cradle things swinging around on the president's desk The Kryptonians all sit bored waiting for Superman's arrival when suddenly a white flag emerges from around the corner of the Oval Office door. Lex Luthor steps out and introduces himself as the world's greatest criminal mind. He offers them the one thing they don't have, the son of Jor-El, Superman. Zod is fascinated to learn that Jor-El's son is the one they call Superman and that he's somehow made his way to Earth. In the first film, Jor-El casts the deciding vote that sends them to the Phantom Zone and they're eager for revenge. Luthor claims to have exclusive knowledge of Superman's address and asks for something in return. Uh, as it turns out, I have this affinity for uh, beachfront property. A reference to the first film, where he bought land east of the San Andreas fault line intending to sink the rest of California to increase its value. In the Oval, his humble request, in exchange for Soup's whereabouts, is Australia. Back at the Daily Planet, the building is suddenly shaking and the Kryptonians enter Perry White's office. White throws a brass Daily Planet ball at Non's head, and Non drives Perry White through the ceiling, knocking him out. There's a lot of really, like, just 
seems like seemingly dangerous things, like when he's like punching through glass. Yeah. And it didn't look like breakaway glass. It's like big shards and chunks of glass are flying across the room. And then I, I do like, though, that he just smacks Perry White's desk down and then both halves flip upwards. Yeah. Like, like it doesn't collapse like down. Like they were heavy the enough on both sides that it yeah. pulled apart. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, that, that was great. Lois goes to punch Ursa and breaks her hand on the woman's face. Ursa has added to her costume some of the badges from the generals they encountered in East Houston. Zod is mad that Superman isn't here, but Luthor assures him that Superman is protective of these people, Lois in particular, and he will be here soon. I, I like that Lex is like super impatient about them not like opening doors. Yeah. He's like, these, uh, seriously, they got to figure this out eventually, right? Zod agrees to keep Lois alive and orders the destruction of the rest, but Luthor reminds him that they had a deal. Outside the office, we see newspaper headlines about the president's surrender, but a sudden breeze blows all the papers away, and Superman is preceded by his theme. He floats up outside Perry's office, having apparently regained his powers using the green crystal, though we don't see that process yeah. at all. Well, okay, so, you know, I'm struggling mm. to get through this movie. Like, I mm -hmm. really was struggling, and I, I think I watched it in, like, five sittings because I just couldn't tolerate more than ten minutes of this movie at a time. And so I, I was watching this scene and, and I was like, I feel like I missed something. I, I, I remember he went back to like, I guess, get his powers back. And then here he is. But I was pretty sure they said this was permanent, mm -hmm. first of all. And second of all, if you could just use this green crystal again to get your powers back, why can't you just go back and forth a whole bunch? And then you, you live happily ever after with Lois you know on the weekends and then you know during the week go be superman or whatever it makes more sense in the donner cut but i will talk through all of that at the end but you're right in this version of the film it doesn't make any sense and there's no proper explanation for why oh i found the green thing that i already knew i had that i've had for decades and now i have my powers back suddenly it doesn't make any sense zod notices superman flying outside the building general would you care to step outside Luthor is relieved to see Superman and quickly points him out to the Kryptonians as a distraction, basically, because they were mm -hmm. about to kill him. So he's like, oh, there, that guy. Come to me, son of Jor-El! Kneel before Zod! And I haven't mentioned it yet, but behind Zod for this line is a framed photograph of Bill Cosby. <laughs> like, Perry White has a picture of Bill Cosby framed on his wall. Apparently, this is a reference to a bit of Superman-related material he did on his 1963 comedy album, Bill Cosby is a very funny fellow, right? Come out of that phone book. Look, I told you I'm Superman. Can't you see this red S on my chest? Right, let me give you a red S and a black eye if you don't come out of that phone <laughs> <laughs> The Kryptonians chase Superman off into the night, and he comes to rest on a rooftop. Zod lasers a crane to drop a large concrete wall, and Superman blasts it to pieces with his own laser vision, but recoils from the use of the powers. Like, it looks like he's being hurt by shooting the lasers, or unless it's just the explosion of concrete that he's, like, shielding his face from. On the street below, people are excited to see the fight start, apparently confident in Superman's ability to save them. Eventually, the baddies catch up, and Non punches Superman hard into the side of a building. A girl in the Daily Planet building, hundreds of blocks away, seems to confess a crush on Non to Lois. The big one's just as strong as Superman. Lois shoves the girl out of her way. The Kryptonians team up to fight Soup, and Ursa accidentally smacks Non back into the side of a skyscraper, which knocks the spire off the roof. Predictably, Superman catches it, 
feet above a woman pushing a stroller through the street. Yeah. All these people are being, it's like debris is raining down. Go inside. Yeah. Like no one's going inside. Everyone's walking. This lady is just walking her baby outside. It's like, oh, well, Superman's got this covered. I can confidently. She's right though. Yeah. (laughs) He replaces the spire at the top of the building and pins Non to the top of it. But why would that pin him down? Because he's not super. Oh no, he is super strong. Yeah, he's even stronger than Superman. Yeah. So it won't, and it doesn't. And, and then, it, as soon as he gets up, it's going to immediately fall on people. <laughs> yeah, again. we don't even <laughs> we don't even follow it the next time that he moves it. So it clearly fell down again. Yeah, like had he like like lasered like the metal or something like that, like melted it down and yeah, just like and real then quick. froze it with his breath. To distract Superman, Zod starts blowing up cars with his laser vision. Superman swings down to put out the fires just as Zod sets fire to the gas tank of a tanker truck. Not the full-size tank, but the one that the engine draws fuel from. Superman tears off the rearview mirror and blasts Zod with his own lasers. I like that. Yeah. That, he, that, see, I like when Superman does Superman stuff. And and to me, like that's a Superman thing. It, like, it feels like a MacGyver thing, too, yeah. a little bit. Use someone's powers against them if their powers are so strong. I think they do that in Thor also when that thing starts using its laser vision on everything in the small town. That weird robot in the first Thor. Yeah, the, what do they call that? It's not the Colossus, or is it? Gort. (laughs) Yeah, Gort. (laughs) Superman uses his ice breath to put out the truck fire, and fire trucks arrive to extinguish all the other flames. Non breaks loose and lands on Superman's head as both men crash through the street, and the entire city is shaken by their subterranean fight. Suddenly, all the manhole covers are getting blasted into the sky. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a manhole cover launched into the sky? I'm going to say the out-of-towners. That is correct. Wow. Nice. Non is launched up through the street and passes completely through an office building. I like that he passes through at an angle. Yeah, he's like going like, diagonally through the floors. Yeah, yeah. it's not just like from window to window. He is yeah. actually like traversing floors. That's pretty cool. When Superman climbs out of the street, Ursa frisbees a manhole at him, knocking him back into a car where Zod grabs him and tosses him through a Marlboro cigarettes truck. As I said before, Marlboro was a major sponsor of the film, and they actually don't have trucks like this with their logos on them because it's a security hazard because people will hijack the trucks and steal all the cigarettes. But uh, they did for this film, and uh, people were mad about it. It led to a congressional investigation, apparently. What? Uh, Because the movie is for children, and it has so much cigarette advertising in it. But wasn't that legal still at that time? I think cigarettes were already not allowed on television in, in commercials. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and uh, because this was clearly a show targeted toward children, it was it was an issue. Superman grabs Zod by one arm and one leg and swings him around, eventually throwing him through a neon Coca-Cola billboard in the metropolis equivalent of Times Square. Ursa and Non grab either side of a city bus and throw it down a street towards Superman, who tries to stop it and is apparently crushed against the front of a building. The Metropolinos decide that they will avenge Superman and start charging the Kryptonians. Zod and friends use super breath to blow all the people away down the street. And we get arguably just the the worst worst. moment. Yeah, like all these weird sight gags. Yeah. One man tips over in a phone booth and continues talking and laughing even as everything is being blown away. A man in a sparkly vest and roller skates is blown backwards down the street. Superman finally emerges from the bus wreckage and surveys the destruction. He takes off through the air and the people feel abandoned as the Kryptonians counted as a victory. 
They fly together back to Perry's office, and Luthor makes fun of them for not killing Superman, even though he basically hand-delivered him to them. Bow, yield, kneel. That kind of stuff pulls us out of town. Why do you say this to me? When you know I will kill you for it. <laughs> it's my favorite line. <laughs> it's so great. Kill me. Lex Luthor. Extinguish the greatest criminal flame of our age. He never seems legitimately worried about being killed, and here he offers them Superman's home address, meaning the Fortress of Solitude, even though he already offered them his home address when they mm. were in the Oval Office, and he brought them here. Well, I mean, he, he's got to hold on to something. Right. They bring Lois as their prisoner, and we cut to the trio in flight with Lois and Luthor riding on the backs of Zod and Ursa. I thought it was weird that that Luther is riding on Ursa. Ursa. Well, I don't think Zod's going to carry anybody. He's well, no, no, but it seems like Nan would carry Luther and Ursa would carry Luther. I'm female. not saying, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, just because it's just weird. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Luthor wasn't complaining. I'd ride her back to the fortress. <laughs> <laughs> For most of this fortress scene, Luthor is facing away from camera or far away yeah. <laughs> because it's a lookalike and soundalike playing the part. Ursa drops him on a crystal balcony. Hey, never heard of parachutes? <laughs> when Superman appears in the doorway, Non makes a dive for him, and the weirdest thing happens. <laughs> he rips the S off of his suit and throws it like saran wrap at Non, who is quickly encased in what looks like plastic until it just disappears <laughs> in under a second. He's like... Family Guy did a parody of yeah. that. It's like, oh, that was really mildly inconvenient. <laughs> what was that? Yeah, take that, you jerk. That was a minor inconvenience. Yeah, well, that's the idea. Slowed you down. I'll say. Ow. Didn't see that coming, did you? No. Yeah, well, you know, take that. Zod reminds his team to work together, and they each hit Superman with one of their own finger tractor beams, but Superman is still strong enough to push all these powers back at them. The Kryptonians all teleport right beside Superman, and then he vanishes and reappears as four Supermen. The whole scene is just test new powers in a montage. Each of the baddies squares off against one of these soup dupes, but three of the four are holograms. The real one gets Zod in a headlock, and the henchmen grab each of Lois's arms and threaten to rip her apart. Again, Luthor interrupts Zod's monologue, and his death is demanded. Luthor moves to Superman to offer an alliance against the villains, and Superman understands quickly what's happening. He whispers to Luthor that if they can get the Zod Bunch into the Crystal Chamber, he can permanently remove their powers. The, how are you going to get all three of yeah. them in there? You, you could probably not even get Nan in there by himself. Yeah. Well, Nan's only like four inches taller than, than Superman, so maybe... But before he can even spell out the plan, Luthor has betrayed him and announces Superman's intentions to the Kryptonians. Don't go in there, General. It's a trap. Luthor, you poisonous snake. Venomous. Oh. He tells them about the molecule chamber and how it works, and they decide to remove Superman's powers with it. But also to, once again, go ahead with the deal to give Lex Luthor Australia. <laughs> right. And they put him in charge of removing the powers. Mm -hmm. Lex Luthor, ruler of Australia. Activate the machine. They load Superman into the chamber again, and Lois cries to see him lose his powers. But something's different this time. Instead of the red light being contained in the chamber, it seems to be everywhere but the chamber. Superman stumbles out, apparently weakened by the chamber, and kneels before Zod. He grabs Zod's hand and starts mashing the bones in his fingers into sand. He lifts Zod with one finger and tosses him across the fortress, where he slides down a wall into a bottomless crevice of the fortress. 
Nan attempts to fly at him, but finds he can no longer fly and falls into the same crevice. Luthor has somehow determined what just happened, even citing the red lights being outside the chamber this time, despite not being here last time. He switched it. He did it to them. I mean, the lights were on out here. While well, he was safe in there. Lois realizes what this means and murders a defenseless mortal <laughs> by punching Ursa into one of the holes with the others. Apparently, in one take of this, she accidentally punched Sarah Douglas in the face and literally knocked her unconscious. Oh, no. Oh, Luthor claims he was in on this scheme from the start. I was with you all the time. That was beautiful. Did you see the way they fell into our trap? <laughs> Too late, Luthor. Superman flies Lois back to Metropolis. It sounds from their conversation like they've decided they're going to end their entire relationship just so Superman can stay Superman. He leaves her on the balcony of her penthouse apartment. Reporters are paid very well in this universe. I'd love to see a modern Superman remake where Lois Lane is hard at work writing listicles on where to find the best cronuts in Metropolis and a bunch of other clickbaity bullshit. <laughs> Clark comes to visit Lois in her office the next day and she breaks down at her desk. She admits that she is selfish enough to want to be with him even if it puts the planet at risk. She's devastated that they have to end things and Clark develops a plan to cure her depression. It's a power that has appeared rarely in the comics and he turns to face her and plants a kiss on her lips, which is accompanied by a musical sting to indicate that he has also done something to her. She nearly faints at her desk, but as she comes to, it's clear she doesn't remember that Clark is Superman, and he has eternal sunshine to her spotless mind. She asks Clark to go get her a hamburger and orange juice for lunch, and asks her secretary, Louine, what's going on in the world, and Louine rolls her eyes at the question. Clark Kent heads back to Don's diner and picks another fight with the jerk trucker at the bar. This time, he lets the man punch him in the chest, injuring his hand, and then tosses the man down the length of the bar into a pinball machine. The crowd in the diner is loving seeing this jerk get what he is owed. Clark offers the diner owner a fat stack of cash to repair the damage and explains, Oh, I've been, uh, working out. Since, since yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, Back to the, I can kiss away your memory. Yeah. Why not just save her from Niagara Falls and then kiss her and then it's uh, gone? Oh, it's really damaging. Like she's got all kinds yeah. of da brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, technically speaking, the procedure is brain damage. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Superman flying with an American flag and landing on the roof of the White House and apologizing to the president for his delayed reaction. The moral of the film, of course, being that television ownership is important. <laughs> Superman flies up into space and toward the sun on the horizon, and the credits start with, Coming soon, Superman 3. That's really ambitious. To yep. know already that you're yeah. going to do Superman 3. And what year was it? Superman, uh, was Superman 3? It was like 84 or something like that. So it, it was a while later. It's not like they were well, already in pre-pro on it. I was going to say, especially because they filmed both of these simultaneously. 83. Yeah, so yeah, they were shooting this in the 70s, yeah. so they didn't really have anything locked down for the next movie yet. In the Donner cut, which is a complete rebuilding of the film, and, and it's structured very differently, but it has a lot of scenes in common, obviously. So I'll just go through what some of the changes are in, in chronological order from beginning to end. It starts with the following message. The following film represents Superman 2 as it was originally conceived and intended to be filmed. Some footage was taken from screen tests of scenes we were unable to shoot. At the top, it's dedicated to Christopher Reeve because he had just passed away right before right. this released. 
It starts like this film did on Krypton, but now Brando appears in a black coat with a white S emblem on his chest. He enumerates the crimes of Zod and his gang and sentences them to the Phantom Zone. I think that that's funny that they're implying that the S is not an S, that it just happened to be some... It's their family crest. Some sort yeah, of, yeah some, some sort of random logo that just happens to also look like an S for Superman. Exactly. <laughs> the criminals are launched into space in the Phantom Zone, seemingly moments before the destruction of the planet. So Jor-El basically saved their lives. Yeah. Because they would have died on the planet if he didn't do that. And, and, that, and that happens in Man of Steel as well. We get a brand new shot of child penis on the Kent farm during the montage of the first film's events, by which I mean a new shot that was not in the first <laughs> film. And it's like, oh, but we still got the same kid to show So up. glad we saved all of this archival footage of a <laughs> naked child. <laughs> yeah, that's not the full frontal shot I was going to use. I'm using this other shot. Clearly superior. Superman throws the first nuke into space where it explodes right beside the Phantom Zone, shattering the chamber and releasing the criminals just above Earth. We start at the Daily Planet, where Lois is being congratulated for her work reporting on the events of the first film. Across the newsroom, she spots Clark and just instantly recognizes his resemblance to the photo of Superman that accompanies her story. She scribbles glasses and a hat on Superman and then sets about proving her theory. Perry assigns them the honeymoon scam story, and Lois jumps at the chance for time alone with Clark to explore her theory. She keeps dropping hints and elbowing Clark, saying things like, I'm just super, or we could fly right up there to Niagara Falls. She blatantly shows him the glasses that she drew on Superman and accuses him directly in Perry's office of being Superman, like in the first scene of the movie, basically. As he refutes her claim, she turns and jumps out of Perry White's office window. Boss, what are you doing? You wouldn't let me die, Superman. Clark races outside to the sidewalk and uses his laser vision to release a fabric awning underneath her, which she bounces off of and into a fruit cart at the curb. And we see this fruit cart in the movie, so it, it just didn't get used the way that they wanted. Right, right, but. right. We happen to know that this wasn't Margot Kidder performing the stunt, but Ellen Bree, who we chatted with for our MacGyver podcast. It's sad that her big stunt didn't even make it into the theatrical cut of the film, but eventually it came out, so that's nice. Clark races back up to White's office and calls down surprised as she abandons her theory. We cut to Luthor and Otis in jail and he explains how the little black box can track Superman north. The scene is basically the same, except there's a moment where Luthor says to another prisoner, I want my Liberace record back. And the guy says, it's scratched. Yeah. And then in the Donner cut, he says, tonight? Like, you want it back already? That's the only change to the scene. We cut to Mission Control checking in with the astronauts. The, the moon scene is basically the same. Back in the jail, we get basically the same breakout with Luther and Otis. At Niagara Falls, we don't follow Lois and Clark past the door to their honeymoon suite. He, he walks them up to the door, offers to, to help him carry her over the threshold, and then we just cut out to, to uh, Luthor using the crystals. Uh, he's very haphazard, and they activate clips of Brando as Jor-El, Jor-El informs Luther of the threat of the imprisoned Kryptonians. Tuskmacher spends the entire time in the fortress looking for a bathroom. <laughs> Tuskmacher? I found it! I think. <laughs> Back at Niagara, the kid falls over the rails the same, but uh, we never get the moment of Lois jumping into the water in, in the Donner cut. Zod and friends land in East Houston the same. 
Back in the Niagara Hotel, the room is completely different. It's understated. It looks like a regular hotel room. But this is the footage from the test screening uh. that they ended up repurposing for the scene. Lois walks around the room wrapped in a towel, and Clark tells her how happy he is to be playing her husband, but she doesn't reciprocate. She offers some tips that could improve his look, adding some color to his wardrobe, not slouching all the time. Clark stops her there and calls her out for trying to make him into Superman. She still doesn't believe Clark isn't Superman and points out the cosmic coincidence that Superman showed up in Niagara Falls today for the two minutes that Clark wasn't around to save a boy. She decides again to test her theory. Still wrapped in a towel, she whips out a revolver and points it at Clark. Oh, Jesus. Can't you see what you almost did? <laughs> Throwing yourself off a building 30 stories high? Can't you see what a tragic mistake you almost made? I made a mistake. I made a mistake because... I risked my life instead of yours. Lois, don't, don't be insane. And don't fall down, because you're just going to have to get up again. No, Lois, now don't, don't be crazy now. Lois! She pulls the trigger, and when he remains standing, she claims her theory has been confirmed. You realize, of course, if you'd been wrong, Clark Kent would have been killed. With a blank? We cut back to the Kryptonians for the snake bite, and then Superman and Lois are already on their way back to the fortress. The Kryptonians have their run-in with J.W. Pepper, nothing changes there. We skip the beginning of the attack on East Houston, and we start right with the reporters showing up with cameras. Instead of Mount Rushmore, the Kryptonians destroy the Washington Monument. Back at the Fortress of Solitude, Superman is talking to his father about giving up powers instead of his mother. The conversation covers an important point that I feel like is missed in the Lester cut, where Jor-El says you're the protector of this planet you're supposed to be helping these people and superman is basically saying i've done enough for them like they should be grateful mm -hmm. I, I have no reason to like help them anymore and it's just like this weird dick side of superman that you never see in anything as lois watches the conversation from above she's wearing a superman shirt with no pants but we only <laughs> ever see her from behind or afar and sometimes even covering her own face with her hands allowing anyone to play the part in this reshot footage when Superman is stripped of his powers, the floating head of Marlon Brando can't help but sneak peeks of Lois Donald ducking in Clark's Superman shirt. Zod attacks the White House. The scene is basically the same. The diner fight goes about the same. Luthor tells Zod and friends about Superman. Clark goes back to the fortress and finds the green crystal, but this time he picks it up and he puts it in the control panel where Jor-El appears to give Superman one last chance at being a hero. Unfortunately, it will use up all of the remaining energy that the fortress has to offer, including all of the crystallized memories of Jor-El. So all the energy that he has in the whole universe will be used up by reinfusing the power into him. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I guess that at least accounts for the fact that we can't go back and forth a whole bunch more times. Right, yeah. and it's a, it's a huge sacrifice to make, too. But, like, I, I guess what's the reason to, to bring that out of the other cut is that he didn't question how because they didn't in the first place or i think the reason that you can't use it in the non-donner cut is that you can't use this marlon brando footage and it seems weird to have his mother give this whole speech when the the crystal is a gift from his father from right. the beginning yeah okay superman hesitates to take on what remains of his father's power but when he does jor-el appears incarnate and puts a hand on superman's shoulder to transfer all the power to his son zod and friends attack the daily planet offices with luthor 
goes basically the same. Superman fights the baddies in the street, basically the same, except with all the joke shots pulled out, so there's no laughing phone booth man or, like, glittery roller skating guy. The ice cream flying from someone's cone into somebody's face. Into someone's face. face, yeah, that's all gone. We do get a moment where Zod kicks Superman through the Statue of Liberty's torch, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Everybody meets up in the Fortress of Solitude for basically the same scene, except before they leave, Superman turns back and vaporizes the fortress with his laser vision, destroying it forever. This time, they break up here in the snow because he has a duty to the planet, and Superman drops Lois off at home. That night, Mr. White is seen brushing his teeth in his own home, and Lois sits down to write her amazing story, and the skies above the city go dark. Clouds blow by and fast forward, and Mr. White's toothpaste freezes in midair above his toothbrush. The Statue of Liberty's torch is magically reassembled. The Washington Monument is reassembled. Zod and friends are cast back into space in the Phantom Zone, and we see Superman flying loops around the Earth with footage from the first film, implying that he's turning back time here, but he literally rewinds the entire events of the film. Yeah. And that's that's how this movie was supposed to end originally, which is actually super disappointing. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess... If you did not have the time rewinding part in the first movie, I would be okay with this. I think it but, makes more sense in the first movie than it does here. Yes. Because you're rewinding the entire movie, and then it's also like, so wait, what happened at the end of the first movie then? Didn't that bomb still get thrown into space? Isn't, yeah. Just because you rewound a tape doesn't mean it's not going to play the same way when you hit start again. Like, isn't all this stuff going to happen over again? But I, I do appreciate the imagery of having uh, Perry White putting toothpaste on his toothbrush because mm. the whole phrase of you can't put the toothpaste back in the in the tube mm-hmm. and then but he can because he's because he's magic in his office the next morning mr white seems to be experiencing deja vu so does lois and superman in clark mode goes back to that diner for a second fight with the trucker so the scene plays the exact same way except for he doesn't say oh i worked out because in this version of the film he only went there once yeah and he just went back and beat up a guy who never fought him in the first place <laughs> because he erased that fight. So it's, I mean, the guy deserves it because he's a jerk, I guess. Um, but I'm not even confident that he's a jerk because Superman picked that first fight. So, Wait, but how far did he rewind? To the beginning of the movie. To the very beginning. Yeah. The, Zod and the the other people are back so in then space. So does, does he have the, I can take away my power, bring back my power opportunity again? Oh, yeah. I guess he brought back yeah. The, yeah. the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He didn't sacrifice anything. <laughs> but now there's two Supermen. Because if you go back in time by going faster than the speed of light, then there's two of you. That's yeah. That's my rule. No, no, I agree. All right, what do we think of this film, guys? Ugh. <laughs> I still think it's a thumbs up for me. Oh, it's definitely a thumbs up. I love I love all things Superman. Why? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, yeah, exactly. I, 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 <laughs> you, you don't have a reason. If you asked me why I love a movie or a character, I would have reasons. Oh, I, I don't have reasons <laughs> for everything I like, for sure. I, I, I grew up with Superman in my household. What? Yeah. This is oh, the yeah. first I'm hearing. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I've always been fascinated by the character. And uh, I, get really, I get really moody and angry when they do things that... Uh, that are un-Superman. Yeah, that are un-Superman. Um, most notably Man of Steel, which I, the probably the only time I've ever yelled at, in a theater at a movie <laughs> because I was just so infuriated. What was it that specifically bothered you there? 
Um, mostly, I know the scene I hate the most. <laughs> um, mostly in Man of Steel, it was just this endless city fight that was just going on and on and on, and like. Like Superman is punching Zod through a building, and then the whole building collapses. Yeah, like Superman just killed a thousand people. Yeah, at like, least. Like th- th- this is this is ridiculous. Um, I'm angry. Uh, he you know, spoiler alert. He kills Zod. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I mean, not that he doesn't kill Zod in this movie. Maybe. I mean, yeah, it depends. I mean, because he rewinds asked. it. I guess. I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah. No, he just put them back in the in the phantom zone yeah in the donner cut but in in the original cut i guess they just fall into a thing yeah i mean maybe they're They're frozen they're just down down there there. um and then slide and then the end of man of steel was the most egregious well there's many things about man of steel that just infuriate (laughs) me but in the end after the entire city of metropolis has been destroyed it has been destroyed by the end of this movie it is gone the city of metropolis is gone Everyone is back to work at the Daily Planet, which like, is in Metropolis. Which is in Metropolis, and and the, they're talking about going to the game tomorrow. Like, what game? Five million people just died. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about going to the game. I think the game's canceled because the whole team's dead. Yeah, and like, who's reading this paper? Like, like I uh, like. Got to keep the economy going, Richard. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I I. Uh, it's just. It's such a frustrating movie, and and it's not Cavill's fault because he is the perfect choice to play Superman. Yeah, um, I they went with this dark and gritty Superman, which I don't think was wise. Um, Superman's petty in this movie. Yeah, uh, in in Man of Steel, like like the, there's like a trucker scene, and he literally crucifies the guy's truck. To, like it was like because he just doesn't like the guy because he doesn't like the guy, and I was like that's not what superman would do ever yeah he's a turn the other cheek kind of guy because you can't hurt him anyway yeah and 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 amy adams's lois lane is a fine choice but they keep putting her in situations like 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 uh when zod comes down they don't know anything about lois lane or superman they're all we're gonna take this woman onto our ship it's like why who is she she's no one yeah. Um. And then when the military is moving in with Superman to help Superman fight this machine, Lois Lane is on the military planes. I was like, why is Who she Who invited here? this person? Um. It, it's it's really just a mess. Yeah. I actually but like Batman versus Superman. The wor- the worst part for me of Man of Steel though, still. And you watched the first movie, so you understand how poetic the scene is where Pa Kent dies of a heart attack yeah because the whole point is that it's like he's, he's, you're a super yeah. human but you can't you couldn't save this one person right. because what happened to them is just something you have no control over yeah but it turns out you probably could have saved him because you probably could well, have just reversed time, time but he, and gone back he, and gotten him to a he hospital he was his adoptive father so he doesn't care as much as he does about like his co-workers or you know getting his house back getting his uh his bachelor pad back in working order but um in man of steel the most infuriating scene for me is there the scene where his father dies. <laughs> They're driving through the town and a tornado is hitting. And they run from their car to get under a freeway overpass and they realize the dog is still in the car. So the dad goes back to get it. Not Superman. The dad goes back to get the but dog. But they know he's super powerful at this right. point. Yeah. Right. But 
and Superman has plenty of time to go out there and save his dad and the dog, but his dad's like, no, you have to let me die because if people see a kid moving fast, they're going to know you're Superman. And and these six people in the middle of like Oklahoma nowhere mm-hmm. are going to like start dissecting you. All he has to do is give him a big old kiss and it would have been fine. Just- <laughs> <laughs> the, wait, which people? <laughs> his Everyone. dead father is just like, oh, I loved you. Forget you died, please. <laughs> But yeah, uh, it's just so frustrating because it's like, why can't I save you? And it's like, because then they'll know you're Superman. It's like, who cares? Yeah. It's like, yeah, but if they know you're Superman, they could kill your loved ones. You're my loved one right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can I save you, please? Yeah. Uh, it's just so infuriating to watch because it's it's played like it's this huge self sacrifice. He's like, no, son, you gotta, yeah, you yeah. gotta let me die in this hurt in this t- terrible no. tornado. And it's like. No, you could have just saved him. That was pointless. Yeah, he, he could have just run out there and, and the people say, how did you survive a tornado? It's like, well, you know, a tornado can put a blade of grass through a through a cement wall or can take a carton of eggs and set it down without breaking a single one. You know, tornadoes yeah. are weird. You're, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just blow them away, you know, kill those people, anyone who noticed. But uh, yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. The whole movie is, is dumb. It's a dumb and I get mad. So that's Man of Steel. But that's I a- like Batman versus Superman. Um, I like the the <laughs> do you, all of it. <laughs> I do um, all the Marth? way. I, I I have to admit that that as much as people make fun of that, I was like, wait, they're both named Martha. <laughs> like that was such a big reveal to me. I was like, they are both named Martha. Okay. Uh, um, At the end of the the scene, Batman and Superman are fighting and they're at each other's throats and. One of them's like, one of them says his mother's name. Yeah, like like Batman's gonna kill Superman with a kryptonite spear, uh, but uh, Superman's mother has been captured and he's been tasked with killing Batman. So if he fails to kill Batman, they're gonna kill his mother. Okay. So before Batman kills Superman, he he asks Batman to save his mom because yeah. he won't be able to, and he says save Martha, and Batman's name mother's name was also Martha. And th- this is, like, from the comic books. They both happen to have mothers named Martha. Yes. Correct. And they're like, this is a good plot point for the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. Everyone makes fun of it. I thought it, it, it worked for me because I was like, what? They're both named Martha. Um, but uh, everything up until the monster fight at the end, yeah, I really like. And I, I have to preface that I like the extended version because the non-extended version makes no sense. The extent- is the is the the monster is this resurrected Zod, right? Yeah, it's it's as the abomination he right. becomes. I know we're talking about. I shouldn't be talking about this, right? I, I don't know. All right. Well, never <laughs> mind. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm going on. I'm not talking about Superman two. So Superman two uh, and Superman. I, I like the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. I love him. He's wonderful. Yeah. I think he's the perfect choice. And there's so many shots. I, I I noticed more of them in the Donner cut actually, but there's so many shots in the lester cut even where you're just looking at him and you're like that is just a live action version of the cartoon drawings of superman like it's it's incredible how how well he was casted i have no problem with him and i and and like i guess conceptually i'm not against superman i just like this movie like it did not do it for me i struggled so hard to pay attention to this movie i just didn't i didn't care about anybody Mm. that was the problem why do I care about Superman? Because he's a sweet guy. 
Yeah, but they're but they give me no reason to like care about him. There's no like character development where I'm just like I care about you. Well, the, why I, would I care about Lois? I think Superman's biggest problem has always been that he doesn't have any weaknesses. And people say, well, what about Kryptonite? And it's like, oh yeah, somebody held Kryptonite near him for three minutes of the first movie, and it doesn't even show up in the second movie. So he has no weaknesses. He can literally rewind time. He can do anything. Yeah, I mean. Uh, yes that is a problem i mean superman's weakness is what zod says in this movie is that oh he tries to protect people right. so if you put people in danger or threaten people then he's he has to react yeah 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 but, but even just... that doesn't matter if he can kill everyone <laughs> but i don't like, care about anyone like there's nobody that i care about in this movie yeah that's fair what about the first movie they're the same movie. <laughs> it's also it's also weird to try and establish like a will they won't they situation when the girl is physically attracted to the hero mm-hmm. and not physically attracted to his alter ego. Then it's like, well, he's already got the girl. He just has to put on the cape, and then he's he has the girl. And then if he's Clark Kent, then she's not interested, and it, that's the end of it. Like, there's not like a will they won't they. It's just yeah, they she already likes him end of story i'm Where, sorry it's it's not gonna be a thumbs up for me two thumbs up is good what uh what are we doing letterbox jess oh god i didn't do my letterbox richard what do you think in letterboxd wise um i got it pretty high <laughs> um again just because i watched this movie a lot so yeah yeah um so i have a number 17 okay which puts it uh, below cannonball run but above clash of the titans all right. Um, okay. I'm going to put it at 54. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. It's 54 out of 83 for the year. It is after Kill and Kill Again, uh, but above Backroads. Okay. <laughs> well, I agree with above Backroads. <laughs> so that's good. Um, I actually have it kind of between you guys. I put it uh, in 32nd place, which is just under Bustin' Loose and just above On the Right Track. For the theatrical cut, our director was Richard Lester. He directed The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, and Help. As I mentioned, he did the Salkine Musketeer movies. He also directed Juggernaut and Butch and Sundance, the early years. Richard Donner was the original director and the director of the Richard Donner cut. He plays a man walking past the diner when they're getting parked outside the hot dog place before they pick a fight with the trucker. He was hired when Guy Hamilton turned the offer down. He directed The Omen, the first Superman. When he was fired off this movie, he directed Inside Moves, which we covered last season. He directed the controversial The Toy, as well as Lady Hawk, Goonies, All the Lethal Weapons, Scrooged, and Radio Flyer, among others. He was gearing up to direct a fifth and presumably final Lethal Weapon movie when he passed away five months ago in his early 90s. Would have been old dude directing that yeah. movie. And I think when Josh Gad did the Goonies uh reunion thing that he did yeah it was uh, donner was there on his 90th birthday oh wow that's crazy character credits went to jerry siegel and joe schuster for creating superman so their entire imdb pages are all creators of superman writer and story came from mario puzo he did the first draft of this he's obviously a celebrated novelist who wrote the novels and screenplays for the godfather series he also wrote the story of coppola's the cotton club 
Writers David Newman and Leslie Newman did rewrites on Superman 1 and 2. They came back to write Superman 3 with Lester and later co-wrote Santa Claus the Movie for Ilya Salkind with Somewhere in Time's Geno Swark directing. Geno Swark also directed Supergirl. Oh, there you go. That makes sense because I really like that movie. <laughs> Writer uncredited Tom Mankiewicz. He wrote Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, Man with a Golden Gun, and Mother Jugs and Speed. We'll see his work later in the 80s for Ladyhawk and Dragnet. Cinematographer Robert Painter was the DP on Little Shop of Horrors, Superman 3, Trading Places, and Muppets Take Manhattan. We saw his work earlier this season for Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Cinematographer Jeffrey Unsworth lit most of Tess last season, and previously 2001, Cabaret, Zardoz, Murder on the Orient Express. His credit for this film is for the shots reused from the first film because he passed away between productions. Editor John Victor Smith he was Salkind's editor for Three and Four Musketeers and edited Soups 1, 2, and 3. Gene Hackman played Lex Luthor. He only appears in footage shot by Donner. Same goes for Ned Beatty, Valerie Perrine, and E.G. Marshall. We've seen Hackman so far in The French Connection and All Night Long, and he's back this season for Reds. He's also known for The Conversation, Young Frankenstein, Hoosiers, The Royal Tannenbaums, and my personal favorite, The Quick and the Dead. I think that's my favorite from him. Really? I, 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 don't get me wrong i do love the quick and the dead yeah he, he is terrifying in that movie christopher reeve played superman slash clark kent he considers this the best of his superman outings we saw him last year in somewhere in time he was famously paralyzed in a horse riding accident but continued acting appearing in a tv movie rear window remake and as dr virgil swan in a pair of smallville episodes yeah, him and margo ketter came came back for oh, smallville cool Ned Beatty played Otis. He's in Deliverance, Network. He's Lotso Huggins Bear in Toy Story 3. He's the mayor in Rango. We've seen him so far in The American Success Company and Hopscotch, and he just passed away about six months back. Jackie Cooper played Perry White. He has a long career dating back to his appearance at the age of three in the early Our Gang shorts in the late 20s and early 30s as Leonard. He was one of the kids, Leonard, a little rascal. At age nine, he was nominated for Best Actor for his appearance in Skippy, 1931. He returns as Perry White for all four of the Christopher Reeve Superman films. Sarah Douglas played Ursa. She was Pamela Lynch on Falcon Crest. She's Dr. Lana Zarell in Return of the Swamp Thing. Colonel Sinclair in Return of the Living Dead 3. She voices Mala in Superman the Animated Series and Donna Walker in Batman Beyond. She also showed up recently as Jinda Cole Raz, a villain on Supergirl, who is also sentenced to the Phantom Zone. She was partly dubbed by Annie Ross, who would show up in the next Richard Lester-directed Superman film as Vera Webster. The character of Ursa is actually based on the comic character of Feora, and Non was original to the film, though both were introduced to the comics for a 2007 action comics run written by Richard Donner himself. Margot Kidder played Lois Lane. She was Barb in Black Christmas, Kathy Lutz in the Amityville Horror. We saw her last season as Jeanette Sutherland in William Phil. She also provided the voice of Gaia on Captain Planet and the Planeteers. She's also Barbara Collier in Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. And in 2004, she made a comment about how much of Donner's footage had gone unused, which inspired a fan petition for a release of the Donner cut, which would come to fruition two years later. Jack O'Halloran played Non. He was Max in Baltimore Bullet last season. He plays Yeti in The Flintstones. He was considered for the role of Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me that eventually went to Richard Keel. Keel was so popular that the character was brought back for Moonraker, but these two actors are often confused for each other. Randall Tex Cobb was also considered for this role, which makes sense. Yeah, they're all huge big, guys. Big guys. 
O'Halloran is 6'6", but he wore lifts to tower even higher above the cast. He has said that in the initial cut, the Kryptonians were not killed by falling into the Fortress of Solitude crevice, but actually apprehended and driven away. The scene was shot, but in putting together his own cut of the film, Richard Donner decided that the moment was unnecessary. Valerie Perrine played Eve Teskmacher. We just had her in our last film as the lady cop who isn't fooled by the cleavage of the lady drivers in Cannonball Run. We saw her last season in Can't Stop the Music. Susanna York played Lara. She's Stella in X, Y, and Z, which just lost this month's Patreon poll. She's Julie in Silent Partner, and then reunited with Elliot Gould as the adult version of Michelle Pfeiffer in Falling in Love Again. She's Lady Churchill in Yellowbeard, Margaret in A Man for All Seasons, and Alice in They Shoot Horses, Don't They? Clifton James plays Sheriff. He's J.W. Pepper in Live and Let Die and Man with a Golden Gun. He's also Carr in Cool Hand Luke. He was Lorimer in Cabo Blanco, but his scenes were removed from the surviving version, so we didn't get to see him. E.J. Marshall played the president. He was Ellen's father in Christmas Vacation. He's Colonel Rufus S. Bratton in Tora Tora Tora. He's Arthur in Interiors. John Mitchell in Nixon. And juror number four in Twelve Angry Men. His fellow juror, Henry Fonda, was also in talks to play the president, as was Douglas Fairbanks Jr., but he won out. Mark McClure played Jimmy Olsen. He's Dave McFly, Marty's older brother in Back to the Future. He's heavy-duty Dubois in Used Cars. He's the only actor from the first two soups to come back for Superman 3, Supergirl, and Superman 4. So he's in all five of the canon Superman system. He played Dax Ur, a Kryptonian scientist on Smallville, and he shows up in both versions of Superman 2 as Jimmy, but both versions of the more recent Justice League film as two different characters. He's Officer Ben Sadowski in the theatrical Justice League from Joss Whedon, and Jerry in the Snyder Cut. Terrence Stamp played General Zod. He appeared previously in Superman 1. He's Bernadette in The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. He's Chancellor Valorum in The Phantom Menace. He returns to the DC Universe as the voice of Jor-El on Smallville. Most recently, he has appeared as the silver-haired gentleman in Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho, which just came out this year. Uh, I I always think of him as the limey. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Louine Willoughby played Louine. She was Barbara in The Final Conflict. That's the woman that was killed by the papier-mâché baby son of Satan. <laughs> Robin Pappas played Alice. She's the nurse from The Shining last season. She's back as Claire, uncredited for Chariots of Fire later this season, and those are her only three feature film credits. The Shining, Superman, and Chariots of Fire. Pretty good run. Roger Kemp played Spokesman. He's back right away in our next film as Horserick in Dragon Slayer next week. Roger Brierley played terrorist number one. He's Mr. Holmes, father of the titular detective in Young Sherlock Holmes. Richard Griffiths played terrorist number three. He's Monty in With Nail and I. He's Uncle Vernon in the Harry Potter movies. And he's Dr. Meinheimer and Earl Hacker in Naked Gun 2 and a half. Yeah. <laughs> when he gets his birthmark sanded off on stage. Yeah. <laughs> I also like when he's reading the smutty book as a distraction <laughs> yeah <laughs> melissa wiltsey played a nun she also played a nun in hawk the slayer last season john ratzenberger played controller number one he was cliff clavin on cheers he's in every pixar movie so far we've seen him in motel hell empire strikes back in outland and he's back for ragtime and reds later this season john morton played nate that's the astronaut who is engaged to Boris on the moon. He was Rebel Force Dak in Empire. He was the pilot of the plane at the start of Flash Gordon. Angus McInnes played Prison Warden. 
He was Gold Leader in A New Hope, Sergeant Whitman in Hellboy, and Judge Silver in Judge Dredd. We've seen him so far in Nothing Personal, Atlantic City, and Outland. John Hollis played a Krypton Elder. He was Lobot in Empire, a Clytus Observer in Flash Gordon, and he's back right around the corner for an uncredited appearance as Blofeld in For Your Eyes Only. Bill Bailey played JJ. He's Officer Hill in Outland earlier this season. Hal Galili played Man in Diner, and he's Officer Nelson in Outland earlier this season. Richard Lepermentier played the reporter in East Houston. He's General Motti in Star Wars A New Hope, and he's Lieutenant Santino in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Don Fellows played General. He was Colonel Musgrove, who worked with Hootkins Major Eaton in assigning Indiana Jones to recover the Ark in Raiders three weeks ago. He's also back as an American colonel in Eye of the Needle later this season. Michael Shannon played the president's aide. <laughs> Not many credits I recognize, but I brought him up because the character shares the name with the actor who plays Zod in the remake of this film, Man of Steel. I was going to bring that up. Tony Sebald played the presidential imposter. He's back later this season for Reds and Ragtime. He's a mine foreman in A View to a Kill and a jail guard in Hackers. Tommy Dugan played the diner owner. He's a priest in The Omen and Brother Mateus in The Final Conflict. Pamela Mandel played waitress she's back in the third film as mrs stokus pepper martin played rocky he was bob in scream one of our first titles from this season the one shot in uh what's it called paramount ranch eugene lipinski played the news vendor he's kane in outland he was also a hospital policeman in bad timing last season jean-pierre cassell played the french officer at the white house he's pierre in murder on the orient express Henri Seneschal in the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie Norman Chancer played White House aide. He was a rebel officer in Empire last season, and he's also back for Ragtime and Reds toward the end of this season. Harry Ditson played Convict. He was Duquois in Top Secret. He was Harold Clevish in Improper Channels this season, and he's back in Ragtime and Reds toward the end of this season. A lot of people in Ragtime and Reds. Must have shot in the UK. Yeah, I was going to say, like a lot of these just seem like UK character actors. Yep. Jeff East played teenage Clark Kent in the opening montage. He's reprising his role from the first film. He was also Huckleberry Finn in 73's Tom Sawyer and 74's Huckleberry Finn. And he's also Chris in Pumpkinhead. Glenn Ford played Jonathan Kent in the opening montage. He's Sergeant Dave Banyan in The Big Heat. We saw him last season as Detective Jake Furham in The Visitor, where he was attacked by a hawk while driving. He was back as Dr. Faraday, inappropriate psychologist in Happy Birthday to Me, and in our mini-sode review of Kinji Fukasaku's Virus Day of Resurrection, wherein he played the President of the United States. Trevor Howard played a Krypton elder in archival footage uncredited. We just had him as Jack Cartwright in The Sea Wolves earlier this season, and he was also Windwalker in Windwalker. He's Major Calloway in The Third Man and Judge Broomfield in Gandhi. I think that's everything for Superman 2. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. And we have a Discord now. You can check the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Dragon Slayer, which IMDB describes like so. A young wizarding apprentice is sent to kill a dragon which has been devouring girls from a nearby kingdom. We leave you now with the trailer for Dragon Slayer. I have been witness to something. Something of consequence to you. To me? There's a great task needing to be done.
No doubt you've heard of our trouble at home. A dragon. Fire and stench. It is evil. Pure and simple. You want me to do battle with that? Behold, for I am chosen, I shall die that many may live. Twice each year, the king selects a new victim. Chosen by lot. Girls. Virgins. Your king's made a pact with a monster. But your children were dying. Only a few. Does that sound cruel? Blacksmith, have you ever forged a weapon? An edge like no other on this earth. Dragon Slayer, coming from Paramount Pictures.